Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is a Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome, hello and welcome to Oral Delights, show 166. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, hope everyone is fine and dandy, a fantastic show today coming up, but it's still the blizzard winters and everything like that. About 100 miles from here, Scotland's had the worst snow ever and hundreds of people have been stuck in the cars overnight, kids have been stuck at schools, oh we are locked down and the heating's on full 24 hours a day, oh my gas bill will be huge, but I hope everyone is having a bit nicer weather than we have no beer. Horrible. But still good things on Starship Sofa coming out each and every week. Give you a little heads up what's coming in today's show. We have the fantastic David Bradshaw with his Tau City Radio. Then we have Starship Sofa Interrogations, Connie Willis, no less. Then we have a, a, just a great story from the late and amazing Cage Baker. It is narrated as well by MCL, who, and it's actually the first story in the Smart Alec series of stories as well. So please look out for that. That is what's coming up in the day's show. Before we get into that, I just want to take a little bit thank you, a little take a little thank you to Ben Wooten. Ben, as you know, did the Yeti picture for the James Morrow story. And do you remember I was talking about the book, the White Clouds book? Well, you know, part of the perks of, you know, running Starship Sofa, Ben very kindly sent over a copy and nearly every artist has signed it. And I'm not joking when, like I say, it came through the post. This book is stunning. It is just an amazing book, and especially, you know, I'm getting all the bloody the signatures in there as well. It is just the artwork, the colour, the quality of the book is fantastic. If you 
Want to have a look at that? I'll put that link over so you can have a look and maybe treat yourself to this book. You know what I mean? It's it's stunning. It's great. I'm just, Ben, honestly, I can't thank you enough for doing that. That's just lovely. Again, that's a, the part of the perks. You know what I mean? <laughs> ben says, little early Christmas present. Well, honestly, Ben, thank you so much. It is stunning. Bloody stunning. Thank you. Do pop over and have a look at that. White Clouds Worlds. A great book. Ben, thank you so much. So, first up, we have David Bradshaw with his just amazing Tau City Radio. I'm so chuffed, you know, this is like, it's working out fine. And David's getting, please send in emails to David, send them over. There's a link on the David's site. You can email David direct from his site. If you want to actually do your own little song, you know, do your own music, science fiction music, if you fancy it, you know, fancy your hand, <laughs> tinkle over the ivories and you want to do that, please get in touch with David. He would love to hear from you. And this is just an amazing little segment. David, thank you so much. That's a classic piece of music from the Krell all the way from Altair 4. That's a tune with style and originality, but I'm afraid you just can't dance to it. Welcome to the December 2010 transmission from Tau Seti Radio. I'm David Bradshaw. I want to thank everybody for listening and certainly thank everybody for the uh, largely positive comments that I've gotten on this spot so far. Um, one episode in and hey, off to a great start as far as I'm concerned. Uh, great feedback so far. Everybody seems to be enjoying it. Uh, a little bit of constructive criticism, of course, which is always welcome. Uh, to that end, uh, the uh, piece of music right off the top of the song, that one's going out especially to Mike Boris, who uh, couldn't recall what the music from Forbidden Soundtrack... Uh, forbidden Soundtrack... Forbidden Planet... <laughs> forbidden Soundtrack, indeed. Forbidden Planet Soundtrack, what that sounded like. And Mike, believe me, I don't blame you for not remembering that. It's not exactly what you'd call a catchy tune. Uh, that piece of music actually was identified in the story as music having been composed and performed by long-extinct race, the Krell, uh, but is an excellent example of the sort of electronic music that that was featured throughout the soundtrack of that movie. So hopefully I haven't gotten anybody into any uh, copyright infringements issues just yet. So again, for credit where credit is due, that is music from the soundtrack, I should say, from the MGM movie Forbidden Planet, uh, composed by uh, Louis and Bebe Baron, uh, and performed by them as well. Uh, please, dear God, don't let us get in any trouble for not appropriately crediting <laughs> the musicians and composers involved. Uh, we don't want our microphones taken away from us, so uh, thank you. 
All right, then. On to some more serious business. The soundtrack, music, soundtrack, however you prefer to think of it, from Forbidden Planet is, is a compelling image. Uh, when you think of, of the, the effect it has uh, and how the composition of that music and, and the, the, the creation of it ties in to the narrative. You know, again, we're being presented with a piece of music that is supposedly of alien origin. And it's very difficult to recognize. I mean, in, in reality, uh, Louis and Bebe Baron uh, were not members of a musicians' union at the time. It certainly didn't compose, perform, or record the music uh, in any way that would be considered standard practice for uh, soundtracks or orchestras. Uh, in Hollywood at the time. As a matter of fact, they were not even in the running for any sort of recognition or acknowledgement or awards from uh, from the Academy for their music, simply because they weren't musicians. They weren't union musicians, and they weren't recognized as such. And I think that's really compelling, simply because they've really hit on something here. If you're thinking of uh, the effect of the music uh, in aiding the narrative of the movie, you've got something here that is so unrecognizable that it's 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 utterly believable that this would be music of alien origin of of alien composition it it serves to enhance the audience's suspension of disbelief <laughs> Yes, willing suspension of disbelief, also known as getting the audience to buy what you're selling. Whether you're talking about a movie or a musical performance or a stage show of any sort, that's a really important element. I mean, you want people to believe. You want people to not be thinking critically of what you're doing as if they're watching you objectively as a performer on stage. Uh, reciting lines or performing a piece of music. No, no, you want the, them to be lost in the moment. Uh, you know, if, if you're telling them a story, if you're acting a play or presenting a movie, you want them to believe the story, to, to forget that they're simply watching a screen and become absorbed in the story. And that brings me in a, in a rather jarring left turn to my next topic, uh, also on the general topic of responding to uh, viewer commentary and discussion. Uh, some of you may recall that I put a thread out on the SOFA forum uh, on the, on the so, as it turns out, somewhat controversial topic of, and forgive my Japanese here, Hatsune Miku. That's the holographic character that was basically a, a, an animated uh, a fictional character um, that through some pretty impressive 3D technology was was put on stage uh that is a live musical performance live musical live if you will i mean accept that term for the point for the moment being a concert situation with genuine people in in droves actually uh watching a stage and on that stage there are live musicians playing music in support of a singer who is a fictional character that is just a hologram projected onto the stage not really there and holy moly folks 
maybe it's just me getting excited about this. I don't know. I, I think it's it's absolutely astonishing from a technology point of view that they were so successfully able to project this image on stage uh, and, and it be so believable. But I think what's more interesting about it is why it's an effective sales pitch, uh, you know, why it's, it, it invokes a feeling of willingness to 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 believe the illusion. You know, of course, we all know that, that Miku is not a real person, that she's a, a cartoon. Uh, but uh, the audience is still, of course, willing to participate in the show as, as if it was in response to a, 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 a performer, to a star, to an actual icon of some sort up on stage. Uh, and, um, and I think it has a lot to do with the sales pitch and why... Miku is significant. Um, some folks out there, by the way, in the forum, wonderful discussion. I really appreciate everybody pitching in and weighing in. And without getting into any discussions of, of whether it was good music or not, you know, believe me, it doesn't, doesn't do much for me. But, um, you know, that's pop music for you. Uh, some folks out there, Judy, Vinnie the Vole, English Assassin, of course, uh, Robin Bradshaw, Thank you, Robin, as always. Uh, Larry Santoro and, uh, and uh, Gav, uh, in particular, I wanted to, uh, to touch on something that, that Gav was pointing out, that uh, there was a group a number of years ago doing something very similar. And uh, equally interesting and groundbreaking, we look at the, the gorillas being a, a, a group of fictional characters that were being presented as a band, essentially, that here's an album, here's a CD, what have you, by this band called the Gorillas, and of course they're not real people, though there's real musicians behind the scenes somewhere, of course, but the public front is 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 this this Gorillas, these 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 cartoon characters, almost like a superhero team, extremely cool idea, very very cool, very cutting edge, and uh, almost I I'd say the only thing going against them is that maybe they didn't have the technology that. Uh, that uh, Miku is enjoying right now. But if you look at the clip uh, of Gorillas that's posted up there, courtesy of Gav, and again, thank you for that, um, you see a little bit of a different presentation. What you see is four flat screens uh, to which the Gorillas characters are are limited. I believe they even move in between each other's screens from time to time during the performance. But they're nonetheless characters that are projected on large two-dimensional screens. And however detailed or, or interesting looking they are, that, that's what they are and that's what they're limited to. More importantly, as the show progresses, uh, the live performers come to the foreground. They come to center stage and carry the show on from there. And this has arguably the unfortunate effect of uh, relegating the, the gorillas to the role of scenery, of, of backdrop, of essentially lighting. Miku, on the other hand, is front and center. I mean, we talk in, in theater, in, in shows, the uh, showbiz, about center stage for a reason, about being in the spotlight. That's where she is. Everything is reversed. The the, 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 she's not a part of a special effects show that's supporting a live concert. She is the show, and that's a first. That's that's something that's new and remarkable and, and really interesting to watch there, that the audience is being given a performer, a virtual performer that, uh, you know, is not only technologically speaking cutting edge, but is an entirely new idea for a live music performance.
enough of this 21st century music stuff now. Let's move on to, say, oh, the 25th century, perhaps even a little bit further. Uh, we've had a little sample so far uh, on the show of music from the far ancient past and the nearly incomprehensible alien mind. Uh, let's bring it a little closer to home and uh, see what uh, what sort of speculation is out there. What sort of ideas people have of of what perhaps music in the next couple hundred years right here on Earth might sound like? I'd like to start with uh, the oldest uh, example here. If we can go back to, uh, this would be the late 1960s. Uh, where are we at now? We're with the original Star Trek show. The original Star Trek series with uh, William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy and company. Uh, specifically, Season 3, Episode 20, The Way to Eden. Uh, if you folks uh, d- don't recall this show specifically, what I would suggest, by the way, for, for this one and any of the other examples uh, that I'm going to mention here, uh, I, I got lots of useful information at a website called tv.com uh, that uh, lists individual episodes of shows. And, of course, you can always uh, have a look at YouTube or uh, Google around online to see samples of these uh, of these shows in action. Uh, but the Way to Eden, uh, which featured the uh, the exploits of a troop of uh, of uh, would be free spirited travelers uh, searching for a, a perfect spot. Basically, they wanted to get away from the the trials and tribulations of life in the Federation and uh, and start a new or simpler lifestyle. Now, this should sound familiar to uh, folks uh, at all versed in twentieth uh, century history. Uh, we call them hippies. <laughs> it's uh, what we're dealing with here uh, and it's no coincidence that we're talking about a TV show that was filmed in the late 1960s the show had an unusually strong a, a large musical content uh, as a matter of fact if you've seen the, the show uh, you try to have a look at it if, if you haven't because of course uh, all that old Star Trek stuff is wonderfully entertaining not that I'm biased or anything uh, but um uh, there was a, there was a strong musical content. As as a matter of fact, during the course of the show, uh, Mr. Spock gets the opportunity to get out his uh, so-called Vulcan harp and have a little uh, little jam session with uh, with our traveling musician friends. Uh, they're playing rather exotic-looking instruments, uh, things that are vaguely recognizable, I suppose, uh, be it uh, Mr. Spock's harp or uh, the character Adam, who uh, leads a couple of numbers, uh, appears to be playing something that, that looks like a uh, uh, perhaps a guitar of some sort, I guess, for, for lack of better comparison. Uh, um, looks a little bit like a, like, a, like a misplaced weather vane, perhaps, as well. But uh, you know, a stringed instrument that he's plucking on, and, and the sounds, of course, are, having been recorded in the 1960s in Hollywood, are of course, real musical instruments that uh, the sounds for these performances are provided by very, very conventional 20th century instruments, electric guitars and the like. Um, and that's what's what's kind of interesting about this piece of music uh, is that, of course, it's pop music. It is pop music contemporary to the production of that TV show that they are presenting it with exotic costumes and strange-looking instruments. I mean, even instruments that we're to believe are from the far-distant planet Vulcan. Um, 
but uh, you know, they're they're clearly just variations of of contemporary conventional instruments, and the music they're playing, if you close your eyes and listen, is simply 1960s American pop music. We see something very similar on um, uh, the Buck Rogers uh, and the 25th Century. Uh, this was a series that uh, was uh, produced by Glenn Larson, Universal Studios, back in the uh, late 70s, 19, early 1980s, if I'm not mistaken, um, and uh, I believe it starred Gil Gerard as Buck Rogers and uh, Aaron Gray as uh, Colonel Deering. And uh, you, you probably remember the, the aggravating little robot, Tweaky. That said BDBD a lot. Lovely fellow. Uh, episode 21 from season one of that show was called Space Rockers and uh, featured a, a 25th century rock band uh, playing even less recognizable instruments. Uh, I seem to recall something about... Um, uh, the, the would-be drummer of this group whacking little clear pegs that were on a board of some sort, and uh, uh, the would-be keyboard player or equivalent uh, having a, some sort of array of colorful circles in front of him that he would sort of spin his fingers on top of. And and, and the costumes were absolutely wild. I mean, these, these crazy-looking costumes with, with, like, LED, with various light shows wired through them and, uh, you know, very theatrical stuff. I believe at the beginning of the episode you'll see them uh, on a satellite doing a, doing a performance in wild, full-color costumes and lighting. And uh, once again, what you've got here, in spite of the visuals that you're being handed of exotic, supposedly highly advanced 25th century musical instruments what you're hearing is 1980s electronic pop music it's it's absolutely contemporary and uh you know perhaps it's fair to say that television is more concerned with the visual that the soundtrack is a backdrop but it's funny to note i i think that here's this opportunity to speculate on what music might sound like what popular music might sound like and all they're able to come up with is something that sounds exactly like the current pop music of the day. Not very futuristic at all. But there are counterexamples out there, folks, and uh, we'll give uh, first off Star Trek a little a little crack at redemption. Uh, the uh, Star Trek: The Next Generation, specifically episode uh, twenty, sorry, episode seventeen of uh, uh, season one. Uh, the episode's called "When the Bow Breaks," uh, features uh, young Wesley Crusher and a number of the other children on the Enterprise being uh, kidnapped uh, by uh, an alien society that wants to integrate them. Uh, rejuvenate their own culture with uh, with the introduction of of youth from uh, other parts of the galaxy simply because they are they're unable to reproduce on their own for whatever reason. Um, one particular scene, uh, as one of the youngsters is identified as having a musical aptitude, and she's presented with an instrument that she need only touch and think about the music she wants to play and. With practice, she can learn to control this instrument directly by her own thoughts rather than having to play, having to pick up and, and manipulate the instrument in any conventional physical sense. And I think that's a neat idea. 
I think that's thinking outside the box a little bit. Uh, uh, the, the music at the end of the day is, is you know, they sort of quickly generated synthesized electronic sounds and, uh, you know, probably bears more resemblance to whale song than anything else. But um, interesting, at least in concept, if not in, in the final music itself, that uh, they're, they're thinking outside the box and coming up with new ways uh, to make music, uh, not assuming, that is, that other cultures and certainly other time periods are going to be limited to our concept of how one plays music and what qualifies as music or a musical instrument. So kudos to them for that. As one final example to consider, I'm going to take once again another dramatic left turn into a slightly different 1970s television show, Sesame Street. Yes, that's right, Sesame Street. Uh, Please, please Google this if you get the opportunity quite possibly my favorite representation of an alien culture in the history of television. The Martians on Sesame Street. You remember them. The ones that go yip, 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 uh uh-huh, uh-huh. You know, and uh, I'm I'm not going to do too much more of that to save you my Muppet impersonations. A certain... uh, There's very few episodes of those made, unfortunately. I I believe they revived the characters later on from time to time, but... uh, but uh, very few back in the day, and of course Jim Henson and company were such wonderfully wacky folks and came up with great ideas. Um, and and in, in many cases, my feeling, we're able to hit things on the head in a way that very serious, sophisticated television producers never really seem to be able to do. Uh, in, in one particular instance with the Martians, they have arrived on Earth outside the, uh, somebody's window as usual, and um, they find a radio. And the Martians, of course, after doing a little bit of research in their book, uh, begin to adjust the radio uh, for various stations and encounter all sorts of different types of music, uh, most of which they react to with some distaste. After going through a half dozen or so different types of radio stations playing rock and roll or jazz or classical or what have you, they finally hit upon a, uh, a, a spot on the dial that's producing wonderful squealing electronic noise and to this they react with joy so I ask you do the Martians of Sesame Street have some hidden knowledge of the Krell of Altair 4 because they seem to be listening to the same kind of music Well, it's time we got back to the 21st century and uh, for some of the music that's going on right here, right now on Earth. A gentleman by the name of Gary Ogle, uh, Gary O, G-A-R-R-Y-O dot org, is where you can find him online, as a resident of the city of York in the UK and a multi-instrumentalist. Uh, having started out on the bass, he has uh, since expanded to playing the keyboards, playing the electric guitar, as well, home recording and songwriting. About his song, The Only Earthman in Town, Gary says, uh, the title says it all, really. A sci-fi scenario that exaggerates what the song is really about. Loneliness and isolation. Now that's an image I can relate to. Sitting in front of your computer, working and recording, 
trying to create your art and not being very certain if there's uh, anybody out there to listen to it. Uh, Gary, in his letter, without meaning to embarrass you, expressed some hesitation and uncertainty, as he put it, as to whether he would even send the song. Well, we're certainly glad you did, because believe me, there are people out there who are listening. Gary Ogle, the only Earthman in town. In the hollowed out spaces of an age Nothing moves here In this silent place Save the flicker in the day's pale flame I said my prayers to the box On the wall I spit my curses at the names across the floor. I place my hopes in the stars, but they're so far away. They're so far away. The rooftops stretch for miles But nothing breathes here No one dreams No one smiles I said my prayers to the boss
That's Gary Ogle and the only Earth man in town. You can check out uh, some more of Gary's stuff over at uh, G-A-R-R-Y-O.org. Thanks again, Gary. And, of course, thanks to all of you for listening. That's my show for this month, folks. Uh, be sure to tune in in early January of 2011 for the next transmission of Tau Seti Radio. We're going to feature as much of your music as I can possibly get on the airwaves. So, until then, I'm David Bradshaw. Turn on your radios, folks. There you go. Like I say, email David if you want to be involved with David's little segment of the show, please. He's just looking forward to getting some music. David, that was amazing. Thank you. So, the Starship Sova now comes on to her interrogation. So, I'd just like to say, Connie Willis, are you a science fiction writer? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I know that a lot of writers don't don't like that term, you know, they want to be called a speculative writer or, a, or they just want to be called a regular writer. And I can certainly understand that because I, you know, I have occasionally told people, I, well, lots of times, told people that I write science fiction and their eyes sort of glaze over and you can tell that they have this, I don't know, image of, I don't know what it is, spaceships and robots and children's literature or something. Um, but on the other hand, I'm really proud of being a science fiction writer. Science fiction is what I fell in love with when I was a kid, and I have never wanted to write anything else, so I can't think of a title that I am prouder of. Um, the irony of it is that even though I have gladly embraced the title, um, that I'm constantly being told that I'm not a science fiction writer. I think because I don't write hard science fiction, or my hard science fiction doesn't look like hard science fiction. Um, and so I, you know, I even had somebody say that all of my time travel novels did not qualify as science fiction. I was like, really? Did time travel get invented since last Tuesday? And I just don't know about it. Um, but they, I, I don't, so I think that even people um, who read science fiction sometimes have very narrow definitions of what it should be. And so I, uh, I, on the other hand, have sort of a broad, I grew up in the 50s and and I read all those short stories in the 50s and they ran the gamut. So I run the gamut too and I love writing science fiction. Tell me about your childhood. Um, well, I, this is the interesting thing. Uh, people are always asking me, you know, what can I do to raise a writer? And I'm, and I'm like, well, first of all, you don't have to raise a writer because if they're going to be a writer, they're going to be a writer. And if they're not, they're not. But um, I grew up in a family that did not read books and did not think much of reading and did not really approve of reading. I was always being told to get my nose out of that book and get outside and get some fresh air. And um, I think I was looked at somewhat suspiciously. And as a result, um, I was completely dependent on the public library. And I I consider my entire childhood to be one spent in the public library. And, of course, read. I was lucky in that they had all of, they didn't have a ton of science fiction because so much science fiction in those days was published in uh, paperback, and libraries tend not to have paperbacks. But um, I, 
I read everything that they had, and they had Heinlein, and they had Asbom, they had Clark, and they had Bradbury. And then they also had the year's best science fiction, which was really terrific. And so I, I was able to get a pretty good science fiction education in the library. I also read <laughs> uh, in, the, in the novel A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, the heroine, Francie, uh, spends her life in the library, too. And she decided to read the library from front to back, starting with the A's. And so I, I started that at one point. I, I made it as far as the D's before I discovered science fiction, and then I launched into science fiction and never looked back. But, but um, I just, it was a life spent scrabbling books here and there. You know, my best friend across the street loaned me uh, Frances Hodgson Burnett's A Little Princess. And uh, one of my mother's bridge-playing friends loaned me a copy of um, Miracle on 34th Street by Valentine Davies. And somebody else loaned me this book. I had an aunt who died, and she left me some horrible, oh, they're awful, Grace Livingston Hill novels. They're just dreadful. But I loved them, and they were all set in the 20s, and I think that's where my love of the 20s came from. And, you know, just random random books collected here and there. And as a result, when I grew up, I, was, I had the spottiest, literary education it is possible to have, you know, and I had read everything I could get my hands on but missed a ton of the classics, and as a result, I didn't read Alice in Wonderland and uh, Wind in the Willows and um, uh, the, what's the one by Ken, um, oh, I'm sorry, I'm blanking. No, you're okay. <laughs> I never, never, no, no, uh, no, I was thinking of, um, of the, the Water Babies, the Water Babies. And I, I had never read that or Peter Pan or anything until I was an adult. And uh, I was saved at that point by an insert in my local paper, which was a list of the great books that everyone should have read. And uh, it was like 12 pages long, single-spaced. <laughs> and I began working my way through that. And, and fin- I'm still not done with it. There are still five books I haven't been able to find. But, but as a result, I had to sort of self-educate and... Um, and so I would say that the, that was the, the single most interesting and, you know, bad and good thing about my childhood is I was going at literature very, very randomly. And, uh, and it gave me an interesting insight into things. Nobody, maybe it was good for me, I don't know. Nobody ever told me that this was junk and this was good. I sort of sorted that out on my own. And, uh, and I read all kinds of things I would probably never have done had I had more loving and devoted parents who were guiding my reading, you know. And, uh, and I think sometimes I've, I constantly have parents who ask me, you know, how can I get my kids to read good stuff? And how can I keep them from reading The Babysitter's Club or some horrible junk? And I'm like, you know, horrible junk is fine. It's fine. You know, let them find their own way. And I, I, I would say that's probably made me, if, if I have a distinctive voice, it's, it's that random reading that I did as a kid that gave me that voice that's slightly different from everybody else's, if it is. How did you get started in the science fiction genre? Well, I... Uh, when I was 13, I was working, this is such a boring and classic story. I mean, it's the same story as every other science fiction writer. Um, I was working in the school library and um, shelving books and saw this yellow book with a guy in a spaceship on, spacesuit on the cover, and it was called Have Spacesuit Will Travel. At that point, I did not know that science fiction as a genre even existed. I knew nothing. The name Heinlein meant nothing to me. And um, I just thought it was a funny title. There was a TV show called Have, Sp- Have, uh, Have Gun Will Travel. It was a Western. And so this was a play on that. And I thought it was funny. 
And so I picked it up, and I, I think I was very fortunate. I've looked at all the other Heinlein books, which I then immediately read. But uh, I think that I really picked, or maybe it was Divine Providence or something, uh, that I happened on that particular book because it was such a wonderful introduction to everything I love about science fiction. It was, it was funny, and it was exciting, and uh, the characters are smart, Alex, and uh, there was, you know, a bantering relationship between the characters and th that sense of wonder that science fiction is so famous for that Jack Williamson talks about was there. And it just had everything. It just, I just loved it. And with, within, you know, the first two pages when Kip is trying to talk his dad into letting him go to the moon and his dad is paying no attention to him because he is reading Three Men in a Boat, quote, a book that he has read at least a thousand times, um, I was just hooked, absolutely hooked. So I read all the Heinlein, and then um, in those days they didn't have a science fiction section, and, but the books had a little, in the library had a little um, uh, thing on the spine that was a rocket ship and an atom symbol. So then I went, scoured the library, looking for all of the books that had that on it, and found most of the other authors. And, um, and very early, and I think this is probably the most critical thing that happened to me, was um, that I found these year's best science fiction collections. Um, and they, these are the ones that were in the 50s and 60s. With, uh, they were edited by uh, Judith Merrill and Robert P. Mills and Anthony Boucher. And I recommend those books to everybody who loves writing because they, they were amazing books. They, you would open a volume and it would have a story by Kit Reed and one by Frederick Brown and one by Philip K. Dick and Shirley Jackson and James Blish and William Tenn and Daniel Keyes and Zena Henderson, all in the same book. And, and running a total gamut from every possible kind of story you could want, from a really scary story to a romance to a, uh, an, a space adventure to a really thoughtful uh, kind of sad story to a kind of what Philip K. Dick does, which is to make you threaten the ground beneath your feet and your own sense of reality and your fragile little mind, and just all of those together in one place. And I really think that those are what gave me a, a real lasting love. The, the Heinlein was kind of an infatuation, and then, and then these were why I truly was in love with it forever, because I realized all the things that it was possible to do in science fiction and what wonderful writers there were in it and, and uh, how, how they took these different things like robots and aliens and, and um, uh, outer space and made, made uh, you know, literature out of them. And so I, I think that's when I truly, truly fell in love. And I've been in love ever since. Which single science fiction writer has most influenced your own style? I would say Shakespeare. It has to be Shakespeare. I know he's not generally acknowledged to be a science fiction writer, but um, he did write Tempest, and he did write Midsummer Night's Dream, and he did write Winter's Tale, so I think he qualifies. Um, and I adore him, adore him. I, I hate him and adore him at the same time. I consider it so completely unfair that he has. It's like all the good fairies came to his christening, and it just, is disgusting. It's absolutely disgusting. I mean, he should be able to do brilliant characters, but not very good plots, or brilliant plots, but not really be that good at the poetry of the, or, of the language, or, or 
have, you know, not either good plots or characters, but have great insights into human nature, like most writers. But instead, he has all of them. And he invented the entire English language, and he's just, I just adore him. So, and I love his comedies almost more than I love his tragedies, which is a lot. Uh, but, of course, I think you mean uh, science fiction writers. So uh, I would say that Heinlein is probably the biggest influence on my style. Um, uh, and that is no different from every writer um, of my generation. I, he was the, the influence on everybody. I, you know, and I love, and I'm talking the early Heinlein. The people in my generation, we grew up on the Heinlein juveniles, uh, Podcane of Mars and uh, Between the Stars and Time, Time for the Stars and Tunnel in the Sky and the Space Beast, I'm sorry, the Star Beast and Half Space Suit. And those are his best work, I think. I really, um, the only adult novel that I think really compares is Door into Summer which was written at the same time, or maybe Double Star, which was written at the same time. Later on, you know, he got a lot more popular and he got a lot more editorial control, and I don't think that's always a good thing for a writer. And, uh, and his stuff became much more rambling and polemical, and I don't like it nearly as much, although there are flashes of brilliance in all of his work that make it worth reading. But, but I, I had the pure, unadulterated early Heinlein, and, and uh, I hope at what, what I... You know, I can't say what I loved most about him. I loved everything. I loved the relationships between his characters, especially. He had that, the bantering relationships down cold, and, and I adore that and do try to do that in my own work. And, uh, but I have to say, it's his, I think it's his style, his breezy style. And one of the great delights to me, oh, I remember the first time I saw Star Wars, and after that, after that first scene with, you know, in the ship where Darth Vader is, capturing everybody and the droids get away when they land on the on the planet and the two two droids are walking away arguing and they pass the um the bones of some creature in the sand and um and then come up across the uh, the i think they run into the sand people or something i i was like oh my god this is heinlein country this is heinlein because he had and I really do think that Lucas was influenced by him. I don't, maybe not intentionally, but he definitely was. Because the thing that Heinlein did was, in earlier science fiction, in the future, people lived in this sparkling future. And it was a very sparkling future. It was clean and shiny and all made of chrome. And they also, they, they were really impressed by the fact that they lived. They were impressed by their silver zip-up magic clothes, and they were impressed by their jetpacks, and they were impressed by their shining cities. And Heinlein's futures were real banged up, um, and the people in them treated them as every day, which, of course, they would be every day to you. And the people in them had problems like we had. You know, they, the kids still had to do their homework. Their parents still wouldn't listen to them and understand what they wanted to do. They're, um, you know, they... Everybody just lived in this future, and I just love that. And and he presented it in not a, you know, a, and here now I'm going to tell you about the science, but in this breezy style, a charming, breezy, charming style. That's one of the best I've ever read, and that's. I hope he's influenced me. I have, I have tried to let him influence me in my work. So let's hope that he succeeded. But. So, um, and oh, and one other influence, and that is uh, 
that's that's Agatha Christie, who is uh, she is the queen, oh, the queen of misdirection, and the queen of mystery. And oh, I adore her. And I have literally studied her books and pore over them. I've read all of her novels at least a hundred times, and I am constantly trying to go. How does she do this? She never cheats. The clues are always right there in plain sight, and they are not only in plain sight, but they're they're in the correct place, and yet you don't see them. And so, and she uses a whole slew of very clever tricks, um, and is constantly playing on the assumptions that the readers bring to the work. So I have tried very hard to be a student of hers, also, because so much of my work has a has a mystery plot at its heart. And um, and I just totally admire her. So she's the queen of misdirection. Heinlein has the wonderful style, uh, breezy style, and uh, Shakespeare can do everything else. So those are my three teachers. Which book by another author do you wish you had written? Oh, <laughs> all of them. Well, no, that's not true. Not all. I do not wish that I had written the Da Vinci Code. That is absolutely or Bridges of Madison County. Uh, or the Twilight. No, I don't wish I'd written those. And pretty much everything else. Um, uh, the Uncommon Reader. Oh, I love that book. Um, the Year of Magical Thinking by Joan Didion. Um, of course, Have Space That Will Travel. I wish I had written. Twelfth Night. Um, Flowers for Algernon. Uh, Lot by Wardmore, which I was asked one time what my favorite science fiction story was, and I said Lot. But, and it... it, it kind of varies between that, on, depending on what day it is, and um, The Light of Other Days by Bob Shaw, which uh, today is my favorite science fiction story. I wish I'd written that. I wish I'd written A Gaudy Night. I wish I'd written Rumor Garden's Episode of Sparrows. The list, all of Dickens. No, not all of Dickens. Um, Great Expectations by Dickens. The Moonstone. Um, I, I love reading. <laughs> I love reading, and I, I, I when I first started seriously studying writing I, I it was kind of like Mark Twain he talks he talks about when he became a riverboat captain and that before he he loved the Mississippi and before he was a riverboat captain he he absolutely thought the river was the most beautiful thing in the world and he could just gaze on it for hours and then after he became after he learned the river then then it, it sort of stopped being beautiful for a while because he he would see a you know a, a ripple of water and he would know that that meant a sandbar or a submerged tree branch that could tear the bottom out of your boat and he would see um, a lovely smooth space and realize that that meant uh, shallows and he and and so he'd learned so much about it that it sort of killed the beauty of it for him the seamless beauty but then eventually he got that love of the river back that. I think when he went away from it for a while and was out west where there is no water, he came to love it again. But um, but so it was sort of that way for me. Uh, I I had loved reading, but I had been one of those just you know d- dive in and swallow it whole, and um, and not think about how they were getting their effects at all. And then when I tried to to figure out how how to do it myself, then all I could see was how they did it and the technique. And I and for a while it was. It kind of spoiled that pure, simple pleasure. Um, but now it's like when I read a really good book. When I read *The Uncommon Reader*, which I read just last year, I, I, 
I felt like I appreciated it far more than most readers because not only did I think it was I, not only could I read it he was so good that I could just read it out and swallow it whole but also I I knew how he had done it all and I could admire and appreciate everything that he had done and the same is true when I read Sophie's Choice I thought oh my god I know how he did this and it's so brilliant and so I think now I get the best of both both worlds in that uh, except when I read something clumsy or stupid and then I can see all the flaws so it, it's a it's a mixed bag, like it is like it was for for Mark Twain. But but I I still I still love reading, and there's nothing more fun than finding a new book or a new author. I just it is such a thrill. And uh, I the, a, a few years ago, um, somebody mentioned the Lucia and Map books to me, and by E. F. Benson, I think that's right. And um, I had never read them. I had, I had seen the the thing on uh, BBC, uh, our, it was put on our PBS. And I, so I'd seen it, but I, I, I don't know. It hadn't made an impression. And so they said, oh, you have to read these books. And, oh, my God, it was so exciting. And there were six, there were six Lucia and Map, uh, Map and Lucia books. And I swore to myself that after I read the first one that I was not going to do what I always do, which is just read straight through an author, and then there's nothing else to read of theirs, and um, so I vowed that I was not going to do that, and then promptly sat down and read the other five <laughs> in a row, just like that. And so, um, and now I'll just have to read them again, I guess. So, but there is no greater pleasure than finding, you know, a new book and, uh, and uh, or a new, or better still, a new author, you know, that I've never heard of and is just absolutely wonderful. So. So great pleasure. So I wish basically that I'd written all of these books, and that's partly why I became a writer because I wanted to. I I try to write the books that I that I would like to read. You know, I I have always tried to. You know, I I hear people talking about the market, writing for the market, and or writing for the reader, and writing for well, this is what people are liking now and. Stuff. I don't understand that at all. I think you should only ever write for one reader, and that's you. And um, and just keep in mind that that you know this is what you would like to read. And I've I've thought about as I get older and my memory begins to go, maybe I can read some of my books and not know how they turn out. And and uh, and then I will have succeeded in giving myself something to read in my old age. What would be the one question you would ask a science fiction writer? Oh, you know, um, I don't know. I, I, I know what I wouldn't ask them. I would not ask them, when are you going to finish that novel? And I would definitely not ask them, why did you kill off my favorite character? And when are you going to write something decent, which someone actually did ask me one time. Um, those are what I wouldn't ask. I, you know, I don't think I would ask anything. I think I would just love the chance to talk to them. I writers when you're asking writers questions about themselves they're not at their most articulate funny and charming they're usually sort of either either they're embarrassed by the fact that you're asking them about themselves or they're not <laughs> and if they're not then their ego is the size of the room and you don't want to talk to them um and and I and I find that when people say to me you know they come up to me and ask me a question and or they come up and say I loved I loved your last book, and you—that's a conversation that goes nowhere. I mean, 
your only options are to say, really? What did you like specifically? Or, oh, I loved it too. It's my favorite. Or something. I mean, it's just a silly conversation. So usually when people do that to me, I try to steer us quickly over to the subject of Shakespeare or, or some other, or some science fiction author or, you know, or the latest movies. I love movies. Um, and so we can talk about something together. And I guess that's what I'd like to do with, with another writer is just, just talk to them, not about, not about their books, um, or, and certainly, God forbid, about my books, but just, just about, you know, politics and the world at large and, and what are you doing now and, and r- the difficulties of writing and, and um, I don't know, Sarah Palin. We, I, I long to ask everyone about Sarah Palin. She is such, uh, you could not make this woman up. And I don't get it, and I am appalled and horrified, and I would like to understand better what it is that people see in her. So, um, I, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, I had the incredible luck. Uh, a couple years ago, um, I, Kit Reed invited me to lunch. <laughs> oh, this was my fangirl moment. Um, I had adored Kit Reed since I had first read her short story, The Weight, when I think I was 14. It scared the spit out of me. And when I read it again a couple of years ago, it scared the spit out of me again. And um, uh, so the chance to have, I was mortified at going to lunch with her and so afraid that I was going to blurt out something like, you're my favorite author and I love you, you know, or something. So, but anyway, I did okay. I behaved myself pretty well. And we just had a lovely lunch. And it was so wonderful to be able to talk to her and, and have her, you know, um, we we talked about everything. I don't remember what we talked about. Well, we just talked about everything, and it was great. And that's what I'd like. I would love to sit down with with any number of authors, uh, living and dead. And that's one of the greatest things about being in science fiction is that really happens to you all the time. You know, you actually. I I'm always appalled when I talk to mystery writers and discover that they don't know any other mystery writers. And then you read accounts of like the pen meetings in New York of the mainstream authors, and you and they are just they all they're all snark and and snap and and they're always feuding with each other and and pretending they're Oscar Wilde and stuff. And it's just, I'm like, well, I certainly wouldn't want to associate with any of those people. And so, but in science fiction, we all know each other and we all call each other on the phone and we have lunch together and we go to conventions together and we hang out together and, and, and we're good friends. And I just love that. It's the, if I, you know, there, there are days when I would like to give up writing forever. And, um, and, those what really always pulls me back into the field is is the people that I have met there and the people that if I got out of science fiction I would never see again because it's just full of so many fascinating people and I love them all well not not all but most of them for what reason do you write science fiction in preference to other classes of literature well um as I say (laughs) uh I, I, well, for one thing, I think of science fiction as literature. I don't think we should have all these divisions. And we didn't used to have these divisions. And it was invented pretty much as a marketing ploy and then just got completely out of hand. And I, I feel badly about that because, because I feel that so many 
you know, I, people say, I, oh, I never read science fiction or I don't read Westerns. And I think that's a huge mistake. I, there are great writers in every genre and terrible writers in every genre. And you should read the good ones and ignore the bad ones. And the same goes for mainstream fiction, especially for mainstream fiction. So in one way, I, you know, I, I, I don't think of my, I mean, it's just literature. I'm just writing what I like. But... On the other hand, I, I um, think that one of the greatest things about science fiction is the incredible latitude that it gives you. I, I just am shocked. I, this last week, the New York Times has devoted its book review thing to Jonathan Franzen's new novel. And it was, they gave it a four-page review, you know. And I'm reading this thing and going, it, it's all about, you know, suburbia and infidelity and angst and middle-life crises and self-esteem issues. And I'm like, why would anyone read this book? Why? I wouldn't read this book. I want to read books about people doing things and real problems and, and not just, you know, navel-gazing. I just hate those books. And so I, I want to read about people stuck in the London Blitz, which is why I wrote a book about it. I want to read about people who've been abducted by aliens or people who, who are struggling with a really bleak future or something. I want to read people about people doing actual stuff. And that is something that science fiction lets you do. And it, it lets you do pretty much anything you want, especially if you're writing short stories. And um, I have written you know, comedies, and I've written tragedies, and I've written experimental, little experimental things, and, um, I, and horror stories, and puzzles, and mysteries, and just, just about everything is contained in the field. And I, you know, that's what I like. I write, I love romantic comedy. It is probably my favorite thing in the world. I love the, the romantic comedy movies, and I love the romantic comedy novels, although there are not nearly enough of them. And, um, and when I got into the field, there, the romantic comedy was basically dead. There, it was, you know, it had been thoroughly killed by Doris Day and Rock Hudson. And for the moment, it turned out to be sort of just lying asleep, um, and came back later with flying colors. But, um, at the time, nobody was writing romantic comedies in the movies, and nobody was writing them in fiction. And it was my favorite thing. And science fiction was really the only place that I could do that. And my very first, uh, not my first published story, but the first first story that got any attention was uh, a romantic comedy called Capricorn. And, um, and I was so happy to find a place where I could write romantic comedy. And I have been doing it ever since. And science fiction is still, you know, chiclet has sort of come and gone. And that made a stab at romantic comedy only with lots of brand names. But, but for the most part, throughout my entire career, I have been able to write whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted. And nobody said a word. I mean, it's, it's truly been fascinating. And um, I love time travel. I love history. So time travel is obviously the thing I was born to write. And, um, and yet, you know, nowhere else am I able to do what, what I want to do and, um, and do it, do this today and that tomorrow and, you know, and change your mind a hundred times over. And, 
and that is the other thing. I've been able to have a career where I didn't write the same stupid book over and over again. I got to write, I could write a comedy, and then I could write a serious book, and then I could write another comedy, and, and in between I could do these very odd things, and, and I, I love it. Why wouldn't I write science fiction? I don't understand why everyone doesn't write science fiction, and I certainly don't understand Jonathan Franzen. He's a really good writer, and I'm thinking, you know, if Jonathan Franzen was a science fiction writer, he could write a really good book, but no, he's stuck out there and mainstream hell so okay <laughs> sorry end of answer what well, one aspect of science fiction writing is the most difficult um that would be the writing part definitely the writing part um i i am not one of those people who just sits down and it flows from my pen i just struggle and struggle and struggle and uh irma bombeck who's a you know comic writer uh, domestic comic writer. Um, she said once that if you don't think housework is drudgery, then you're doing it incorrectly. And um, uh, that's kind of how I feel about writing. The people who say, oh, I just, you know, I, it took me 10 minutes to write this and I was drunk at the time, or, you know, oh, I just, I sit down and it just comes from my pen. I see these things in my head and they flow onto the page. I'm, I have no idea what they're talking about. Um, I, struggle and struggle and struggle this last um, book uh, blackout and all clear is my new novel it's one novel it's split into by the publishers because it was too long to be one volume but it's really just one novel it's not two connected novels it's not a novel and a sequel it's one novel and which i say because people may get very alarmed when they get to the end and of the first volume where it says nothing on the cover or on the jacket flap uh, about its being the first half of a novel and i I'm very annoyed about that. Um, but uh, I, so one long novel, took me eight years. And I would say that I didn't enjoy a single day of that probably. Um, it was just awful. It was awful. I had so many characters and I had such a complicated story and I wasn't sure I could pull off the ending. Uh, for a while, I wasn't sure the ending was going to even work. And I was juggling different times, and I was juggling different places, and I was trying to keep it all straight, and I had all these diagrams, and it was just a nightmare. And, um, and, and I also had my publishers in my ear shouting all the time that it was too long, because it was, it was supposed to be one book, which then turned into three, and then had to be squashed back down into two, which is what it is now. So um, I ended up, you know, in misery for most of that eight years. And um, Edith Wharton once said that beginning a novel, a novel was like beginning a love affair. Writing a novel was like walking barefoot across the Gobi Desert. And finishing a novel was like recovering from a long illness. And she absolutely had it nailed. So I, I don't, I, I hate writing. <laughs> and so then people will say to me, well, if you hate it so much, why do you do it? I'm like, well, because, you know, it's fun. It's fun. It's hard, painful, boring, irritating, wrenching, grueling, fun. So, and I do love it. I do. Does it get any easier? No. No, <laughs> not at all. Actually, it's really, I, I find it really interesting. I guess it gets easier if you keep writing the same book over and over again. Um, parts of it do get easier. I mean, when I started, I, oh my gosh, I didn't know how to do anything. I didn't know how to do scenes and transitions and description and flashbacks and dialogue. I didn't know how to do any of that or how to, con I certainly didn't know how to construct a plot. Um, 
now I know how to do all those things except description. I never did learn how to do description, so I just try to fake it um, and uh, cover. I, nobody's noticed so far, so um, I probably shouldn't say that because all the essays that appear now will be, as Connie Willis herself admits, she knows nothing about description, um, and it's true. But the, the problem is that you solve all those, you learn how to do all these things, which is helpful, uh, and you figure out how to do this particular book at great trouble and sorrow, and then you write this other book, and you need to know a whole different set of things. And uh, you have to have a completely different skill set. Um, this last book, when, when, I had, when I wrote Lincoln's Dreams, I had like three characters in it, four. I guess I had four main characters in it. And that was it, and one storyline, and one viewpoint, you know. And, um, and it was a, and, and a chronological timeline, too. So those, but I, uh, and it's a good thing because I didn't know how to do anything. And I also, you know, that was hard enough. It was hard enough to get in to be doing the Civil War, American Civil War, with, while dealing with all of these, um, you know, problems and things that I didn't know how to do. And a complicated story, but just not, you know, not that complicated. So then, so then that was great, and I knew how to write that book. And then I wrote Doomsday Book, which had like, I don't know, 40 characters and two timelines and two viewpoints and um, that had to match. I mean, the, the timelines had to match and the stories had to match and they had to come together at the end. And, and, just, uh, and I had tons of explication that I'd never had to because if people don't know anything about the American Civil War, they really don't know anything about the Middle Ages and the Black Death. And so it was just a whole new skill set. So then I was really happy because I knew how to write that. And then, um, and then I wrote To Say Nothing of the Dog, which is a comedy, which, of course, has oh, a whole different skill set. And completely, you know, you're, you're working in completely different territory. And as, as um, uh, Edmund Glynn said, uh, dying is easy, comedy is hard. And uh, so, so, you know, each book has a whole new set of problems. This book, The Blackout and All Clear, I have, oh my gosh, hundreds of characters. I have multiple viewpoints. I have multiple timelines that do not match and have to be, I have to make sure that although this came before this in this timeline, it came after this in this other timeline and the possibility that none of these timelines are, are going to work out to be the real timeline and oh my gosh, it was just another nightmare. So the temptation is very strong to pick a book pick a formula, master the formula, and write it. And we all know successful writers, I won't name any names, who have done that. But it, that's not what I want to do. I, I, I want to write, like I say, I want to write the books I want to read. And so, so I, guess, I guess I'm stuck with it always being more difficult and having a new set of problems each time around. But it's fun. That keeps it really interesting. I can't imagine doing anything else because I think that if you were writing the same book, you would just be bored to tears, you know. And I'm not bored. I'm miserable, but I'm not bored. Describe your daily working day. Um, oh, well, okay. Um, I, I, lately, my husband, my husband is retiring, and this is a major shock. We are having a period of adjustment because I used to have the whole day to myself, 
while he was teaching and then um and then the evenings with him and now he's in my territory my house trying to get in my way and of course wanting to do things that are really fun like go out to lunch or go shopping and things but you know i have to get some work done so we're we're trying to work out all of that and we at this point only have one computer between us and are constantly in each other's way and so in a major effort not to kill each other uh, we have purchased but not received in the mail our new computer so I will have my own setup, and hopefully that will that will help with things. But as it is right now, here's my work day. Okay, I get up in the morning, and after breakfast, I have and and I look at all the political websites because I am a political junkie. And as I say, my Sarah Palin obsession is getting completely out of hand. The woman is a complete moron. How can she possibly be a leading contender for a presidential nomination? How is this possible? Okay, sorry. Anyway, so I check to make sure that things are, you know, not falling completely apart, which they always are. And then I guess probably I use that like coffee, you know, it kind of gets my blood pressure up <laughs> to a certain level and then I'm awake. And then I have been lately trying very hard to answer my emails promptly. I am the worst, world's worst email person. I have flunked Facebook. My daughter set up a Facebook site for me and I have not touched it or friended anyone or done anything since she set it up last Christmas. So anyway, I, next my next job is to master Facebook. But in the meantime, I feel like I'm doing good if I just try to get so that I'm answering as I think it took me, what, six months to answer your email? So I'm trying to do better with that. So I spend an hour since my husband is gone. He has class in the morning. And um, I take advantage of the fact that he's gone to do my emails for an hour. I work for them on them for an hour. And then I go uh, over to Starbucks or to Margie's Joint, which is our local coffee shop, or to the library, kind of depending on what I'm doing, if I'm doing research or something. And I then spend the morning writing and um, then come home at noon, usually take the dog for a walk and try to do all the housework, phone calls, deal with the plumber, deal with the tree guys, you know, deal with all those things. Um, correspondence, and you know, you know, just all the junk of daily life. And then I go back for a late afternoon session at um, one of those above places. Right. I write away from home because I'm a person who, when I'm home, I'm constantly distracted by the fact that, uh, well, first I'm distracted by the fact that my husband's home, but second, I'm distracted by the. Um, the fact that there's there are phone calls, you know, and and I know you're not supposed to answer your phone during working hours, but then I get to thinking, well, what if it's like if it's my husband calling and he's been in a car accident? I can work myself into a total state over this. So then I answer the phone, and it's you know a charity pickup or a political call, and then, but as I have gone to answer the phone, I see that I really should do those dishes before dinner. And I really need to go take a load of clothes out of the washer and put a load into the dryer, et cetera. And, and it's just there's this endless list of things I should be doing and constant re reminders of that. People come to the door, you know, just all those distractions. So I work away from home where I don't mind white noise. And, in fact, there are great conversations to eavesdrop on, which sometimes gives you story ideas. And... Um, and so, and there's just a little bit of companionship, but nobody bothers you. They all know me over at Starbucks, and I'm sort of the nut in residence. And so we talk for five minutes when I get there, and then everybody leaves me alone. And um, 
and I get a lot more done than I would at home. But of course, the way the the day really works isn't like that at all. The day the way the way the day really works is that I, you know, wake up and the dog is thrown up in the kitchen, and I have to call the vet, and then the vet's supposed to call me back, and then he doesn't, so I hang around till he calls me back, and then he can't get me in until almost noon, and there's really no point in going and riding until you know because there's just an hour and a half. So then I hang around and try to do some housework and then I take him out and then he needs to keep him for tests and <laughs> you know uh, all the usual daily life stuff that everybody has to deal with and that gets in the way of the writing and when, when I first started writing I read a lot of how to write books you know and um, they all said oh you have to have a, sol- a set time and it needs to be the same time every day and you have to have at least three hours there's no point in working unless you can have a solid block of time. And I was like, I will be 150 years old before I ever get more than 15 minutes at a time. Because at that point, I was a substitute teacher and I had a child at home and so on. So, so I started carrying a notebook with me and I would write. I wrote on the bleachers at school. I wrote waiting in the car for my daughter. I w- wrote in the waiting office of the orthodontist. I wrote here and there and everywhere. When I was doing the dishes, I was constructing plots. When I was taking a bath, I was working out dialogue. When I was driving someplace, I was trying to think of different things. I was constantly writing, and whenever I got a chance, I I scribbled down something. And then at some point, I would get enough 15-minute you know, chunks of stuff together um, that I was able to grab an afternoon, put the story together, and then work from there. But uh, I still don't have a lot of times more than 15 minutes. Uh, it's a whole different set of, you know, a different set of, of obligations that I have. I'm supposed to write a blurb for a book. I'm supposed to do um, uh, an introduction to something. Uh, my editor needs three or four publicity things from me. I have to do an interview like this one, which I really enjoy. Um, and, you know, uh, so it's a different kind of, of uh, interruption. But the interruptions are still there. And, and I people are always asking me, how do you find the time to write? And I, as if there were like some magic formula and I would tell them and then they would from then on have the time to write. The truth is you are trying to carve it out of every single day uh, like you would carve something out of solid stone and it's a different problem every day and uh, and you just have to kind of hang in there and keep at it. But uh, So my working day is fairly pathetic too, but... but uh, as I say, I do love this job. You would never, you would never know it from all the complaining that I do. But actually, when I look back on my life, I, I just could not have been luckier. Um, if you had told me, 13-year-old me, with my little black and white marble composition notebook, you know, scribbling down stories and reading How Space It Will Travel, if you'd sat me down and said, all right, you are going to know all of these authors. You are going to get to travel the world meeting them. You are going to get to have uh, know all the most interesting people on the planet. You're going to be, you know, you're going to be famous. You're going to be in the Science Fiction Hall of Fame. You're going to win awards. I I mean, that would have just seemed to me the fulfillment, beyond fulfillment of my of my wildest dreams because as far as the farthest I had thought at that point was that I wanted to get a story published, you know. And so all this other stuff was just beyond imagination. So so I'm just complaining. People always complain about their jobs, right? And you ask me. 
What's the strangest thing you've ever done while researching? Well, gosh. Um, the, let's see. The first book I ever wrote was a, a, a gothic thriller, which never saw the light of day. But um, my heroine had been chased into Garden of the Gods, which is a bizarre rock formation near where I live. And um, um, I had to... They were chasing her, and she was hiding in and among the rocks and stuff and on a very foggy day, which added to the mystery of the whole thing. And so I actually went down to Garden of the Gods and hid among the rocks and had to wait for a foggy day, which we don't get very much in Colorado, and then um, take notes like crazy and stuff uh, while doing that. I have no idea what the park rangers thought. So, And... Um, uh, and I am famous for, for making bizarre phone calls um, toward the end of Lincoln's Dreams. I, I had seen this picture of um, Robert E. Lee's tomb, and the, there's an effigy of him on the tomb, and he's lying. He has one hand crossed against his breast, but all the, all the photos were taken from the same angle. So I couldn't see his other arm. You know, if, was his arm lying straight at his side? You know, was it was it on the the hilt of his sword? What was it also crossed? I couldn't see any of that. <coughs> so I called up Washington and Lee University and asked for the you know um, library archivist and said, "Hi, uh, this is Connie Willis, and um, that that effigy of uh, of um, Robert E. Lee. Tell me what his uh, left hand is doing. Left a uh, left uh, arm is doing, and and she." answered me and I said thank you very much and hung up and 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 then I felt ashamed I felt like I should have you know explained what I was doing and stuff and I said as much to another librarian friend he said oh no people call and ask stupid questions like that all the time so we're used to them so I do do a lot of that sort of thing um, the most probably the most dangerous note-taking I did was um, we were in England in London right after the the terrorist bombings in the subway and uh, uh, I think it was about a week later, week and a half after that. And I needed really badly to research the, the tube stations, the, you know, whether they had lifts whether they, uh, rather than, or uh, escalators, uh, which parts were remodeled, which parts weren't, uh, which parts probably dated back to 1940, um, which levels, you know, which lines were on which level and so on. And uh, and I had to go through all of the tube stations that were going to be in my novel, uh, looking looking at this stuff and then writing it down and thinking, you know, this could be really dangerous. I, you know, that here I will have this notebook full of of details about the structure and and uh, layout of the of the London tube system. And, and uh, so my husband made me carry a paperback copy of one of my novels in case I was arrested so that they would know that I was not planning another terrorist attack. So, but um, I, am, I do take notes pretty much everywhere I go. And um, I, I wouldn't say I've ever done any truly weird researching. Somebody said, you know, well, so didn't you have to be in England all the time to research, you know, the Blitz? I'm like, you know, 1940s London no longer exists anywhere, not even in London. And I have to mostly do book research. That is the only place the Blitz um, really exists. And uh, I was, but I was so lucky. I, the, my favorite, my favorite piece. This is, doesn't count as dangerous or weird or anything. This was just the greatest research I ever did. 
um, my husband and I went to the Imperial War Museum to research, do research on the Blitz for the current book. And uh, um, I, I, they had a, an exhibit on the Blitz. So I said to my husband, all right, I'm going to be in here for hours, and I want you to go, go look at you know, bombs and rockets and planes and things and just leave me alone because I'm going to work my way very slowly through this exhibit taking notes. Okay, so he comes back in about 15 minutes and says, I need you to come look at something with me. And I said, I told you, I'm trying to take notes. I'll come, I'll meet you for lunch, and then we'll look at whatever you want. No, 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 you have to come now. You have to come now. I was extremely annoyed, extremely annoyed by this. But he was very insistent. So I went with him and was very glad I did because he had found out, found out that this was a free day at the universe, at the museum for anyone who had worked in the Blitz. And he had located a group of about 12, I think, elderly women who had all been ambulance drivers and rescue workers and canteen workers and volunteers of one kind and another during the Blitz. And they had come down by bus to spend their day at the, at the museum. And he had gotten them all into the cafeteria, bought them all tea and cakes, and sat them down so that I could interview them. <laughs> and they were so wonderful. They, they were just terrific. They were funny, and they laughed and laughed and laughed. They told me all these hilarious stories. And I said, this was the blitz, you guys. You sound like you were having a wonderful time. And one of them said, well, the thing is, we were young. We were in London for the first time in our lives. And there were all these men. And it was so great. They were just great. And uh, they all talked. I did not really interview them at all. They just talked. And I wrote it down. And um, uh, except there was one woman who didn't contribute a lot. She didn't say much. She sort of, I mean, she didn't not talk, but she didn't contribute a lot. So when they kind of wound down, then I said to her, now, I, I haven't heard a lot from you. What, what did you do in the war? And she leaned forward with this very Mona Lisa smile on her face and said, well, until a few years ago, I couldn't tell you. And she had worked, in fact, on the intelligence war that was fooling Hitler into thinking that the attack was coming at Calais, at Calais rather than Normandy, and which plays such a huge part in my book. So I was able to interview her, and it was they were amazing. And in the end, I put them in my book. They're they're in all clear because I I thought they were so terrific. But there is nothing like talking to people who've really lived through it. Uh, you can get the facts almost anywhere, but you can't get the flavor. And I, it certainly never would have occurred to me that these women were having the time of their lives, you know, because, uh, and, and that they, and their cheerfulness, their overall cheerfulness, which, you know, you, we hear so much about PTSD now and, and the whole idea that you're traumatized for life by events. And I think with, with them, it showed me that a lot of times when you come through something, you, you know, it's the worst thing that's ever going to happen to you. And if you get that over when you're done, when you're young, and you survived it, and you did okay, then it's it's almost like you have a really cheerful and optimistic view about the rest of the of the 
the of your life and the rest of the world. And so that that I I've tried to keep in mind too because uh, I tend to you know always think the worst is going to happen. So so anyway, and my new standard though, however, is when I get really depressed about politics or or whatever, I think about how um, the I try to compare it to September of 1939 in England. <laughs> and uh, we haven't hit that point yet, so things are still okay, I guess. Do you think science fiction as a genre is different from other genres? No, I really don't. And I, I know what people are talking about when they say that. They, they're talking, I think, about the, the famous story of ideas. Um, the, the story where there really aren't any characters and there really isn't any plot. There's just it, the story is nothing but a vehicle to talk about the idea. And, of course, some of those stories are my favorite stories in science fiction. Um, Philip Latham's The Xi Effect, I can remember when I read that as a kid and just adored the story. And it has really no plot and no... I mean, the plot is sort of trying to figure out what's going on. Um, but mostly it's the idea that's the, the killer part of the story. And uh, and Rendezvous with Rama, where you have, uh, by Arthur Clarke, where you have the, you know, the spaceship is the most interesting character, and the you cannot tell one human from another, you know. I Even while reading it, I couldn't tell one human from another. But I think the mistake that people make there is is, is not understanding the nature of the characters. In, in Metropolis, you know, the city is a character. Metropolis is a character. And um, and in Philip Latham's story, this this theory of what was going on is a is a character. And Rendezvous with Rama, the ship is the character, and the alien race that built the ship, um, the Heechee and in the Gateway stories by by Frederick Pohl, where um hiring for your small business. If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You never meet them, but they're, they're characters in the story. So um, I, I think that, I, I think that, yes, we do produce that particular kind of story that nobody else produces. Um, 
but I don't see how that's different from like things like Utopia by Thomas More, which is just a polemic. I mean, or, well, I wouldn't say Gulliver's Travels has other stuff in it besides besides political ideas and satire, but um, but there are lots and lots of books which are, are little more than, than political examinations of an idea. So I would say no, uh, and I think that the idea that you can't judge, you know, that's usually used as a preface to an argument that you cannot hold science fiction to the, the standards that other genres are held to. Therefore, they don't have to have good writing or interesting characters or good plots or anything. Um, and I think that's a stupid argument. I think the best of science fiction is, is, has all of the things that literature has. And in fact, I think we've produced some great literature. I would, I would put Flowers for Algernon and The Light of Other Days and Lot up there with any story by anybody. Um, uh, well, anything by Philip K. Dick, of course. <laughs> uh, there are just so many, so many wonderful novels. Uh, oh, Canical for Leibowitz. I'm sorry, that's what I was trying to think of. And Canical for Leibowitz. Let me start over there, and you can cut this, okay? I, I think that there are so many novels, like uh, Canical for Leibowitz by Walter M. Miller Jr. and um, uh, Dune, and uh, that are just terrific novels. There, there are wonderful novels. Philip K. Dick's. Um, do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep is a terrific novel on, by any standards. And so um, I think it's a mistake. And I think the best science fiction stories for me are the ones that use all of the, all of the tropes of science fiction and all of the tropes of literature together at the same time and produce, um, like I say, great stories that could stand up anywhere. Uh, so so I, no, I don't. Except that, I mean, it must be different from other genres because when you go to um, uh, turn in books at a used bookstores, I've asked about this all over the country because I was so intrigued by it and found that, um, that in, in most used, you know, the kind where you can trade in books at the bookstore, uh, those bookstores will pay a premium for science fiction. They, they frequently will reject uh, um, romances because they have an overstock. They frequently will reject mysteries because they have an overstock or westerns. But, but science fiction is always at a premium. So that tells you something. I don't know what exactly, but um, I, I think that science fiction is unique in uh, the love and passion that its readers have for it, I guess. And that might set it apart from other genres. But I no, I, I just mightily resist us being different from anybody else. I hate those separate sections in the library. I think they, they're like little ghettos. I hate the separate marketing. I hate the fact that people blithely say, I never read science fiction. And then when you give them your book, and they read your book, and they like it, then they say, well, I love that, but it isn't really science fiction. Well, of course it's science fiction. I mean, I hate that that we're considered this separate genre. I want us to be embraced by everybody, and and I think that that everyone could love reading science fiction. And so, it drives me crazy that we're constantly being ghettoized. What do you consider the chief value of science fiction? It is the same as any other literature, which is to tell the truth. Tell the truth. Um, you know, when I grew up, there were these books called, I think they were called Uncle John's Stories for Children or something like that. They were just horrible. They were, they must have sold them to doctor's offices or something. You always found them in offices. And I, of course, would read anything that wasn't nailed down. 
And so I read all of these, but they're just ghastly stories. They're religious stories. And they were, the point was, you know, they were very moralistic stories, uh, like a holdover from Victorian children's literature or something. They were things about, you know, the little girl whose mother told her not to play across the street in the construction site because it was dangerous. And the little girl doesn't listen to her, and she goes across, and she plays, and sure enough, she gets a horrible splinter in her leg. And then she goes home, and it gets infected, but she won't tell her mother because she's afraid of what her mother will say because she disobeyed. So, so they have to cut off her leg. They were just horrible stories, and they did not teach me to obey my mother. They taught me that the, this mother was horrible and cruel and that this was a disgusting punishment for such a minor infraction and normal curiosity. Um, I did not, not ever, I have not ever gotten the lesson that I was supposed to get from any of the proselytizing literature that I have ever read. And I think that literature totally fails when it has an agenda. I think I, you know, as a person, I have these extremely passionate political views. I am just a dyed-in-the-wool liberal, and I am just, you know, if you talk to me, you can only talk to me for about two minutes before knowing this. I hope this does not my politics, my personal politics, I mean my personal attitudes obviously come through in my work, but I try not to inflict my politics, I try not to do polemics, I try not to stick my own religion, I try not to, to try to teach anybody anything or convince them to do anything. There are no morals in my books. There are no attempts to improve the human condition or clear the slums or do anything because literature, that isn't what it's for. It, it works best. It does all this social good. That's the irony is that it does tremendous social good. Huckleberry Finn, I will put right up there with Rosa Parks as being a major influence in the civil rights movement, but not because he wrote a polemic about how blacks should be treated as people, because he was writing about humans and because you love Jim and, he's, and, and you can't help but love him because he's this human character but not because he, uh, because he was trying to make a point. And I think Dickens is at his strongest when he is writing about people and at his weakest when he is writing about clearing the slums because he doesn't fully understand how literature works. Um, Greg Feely said one time that uh, literature does work on social justice, but it almost always works down at the level of groundwater. So it seeps way down through layers and layers of rock and then eventually affects everything. And I think that's really a good, a good definition of how literature works. Um, I, so to me, literature serves no purpose. And I was appalled the other day. I was on a plane and the woman next to me was reading this little story, you know, ducky wucky or something to her little boy, and, which was great. And then she got to the end and she said, now... Charlie, what do you think this story is trying to say? And I looked at her in absolute horror. First of all, children know what the story is trying to say without you asking them. And you're not supposed to ask them because that brings it out into the open. And the message of stories only works if it's not out in the open. And so if, if it's sort of floating around there in the back of your mind. I was just so appalled by this and appalled by the idea that you couldn't just read a book called Ducky Wucky because it was fun, because it was interesting, because it made you think uh, that you had to have some moral tact onto it. I think we still have. The Victorians did us huge disservices and they continue to do so. 
and I think that the the moralistic kind of writing is alive and well uh, everywhere you look in in literature. So I don't want literature to have any function whatsoever, except to tell the truth as best you can. And the truth is a complicated truth, full of ironies, um, not simple, uh, very contradictory, all of those things. Um, And the reason I'm so passionate about this is that to me, books were my, my total salvation. My, my mom died very suddenly when I was 12, and it was the shock of a lifetime. Talk about getting the worst thing that will ever happen to you over very early on. I was one of those people. And um, the, the, uh, I was horrified when it happened because of the lack of truth-telling. <laughs> Nobody was willing to talk about it. Nobody was willing to try and help me understand it. Everybody was full of disgusting platitudes like the good die young, not exactly an invitation to good behavior. Um, And uh, God needed your mother more than than you needed her, which was a ridiculous lie. And, um, you know, this will all make sense someday, which is an even more ridiculous lie. And just full of this stuff. I couldn't find any help anywhere except in the books that I read. And what I found myself doing was at that time going back and reading all the books that I thought might have had any help. I read the whole section in uh, Little Women where Beth dies. And, and that was wonderful because, because Joe didn't try to tell me that the good die young or the, the, uh, even though Beth was very good. Um, and, and she didn't try to make any sense of it, you know. Um, and then, uh, as I say, I had read my way through to the D's in, um, in the general uh, shelves of my library before my mom died. And so I read Peter DeVries' uh, Wash in the Blood of the Lamb, which is about the death of a child. And he talks about, you know, how it's ridiculous to say that you get over a death. You never get over a death. You simply take your place on the mourner's bench alongside everyone else who's lost someone, and it stretches all the way back to the beginning of time. That I found tremendously comforting because it wasn't trying to be comforting. And I found that books were the only place that you could trust to actually tell the truth. And all these years later, I still believe that. And the first place I will go for comfort uh, and wisdom and information and the truth is books. And so I think science fiction has an obligation to tell the truth just like, just like the rest of literature. And uh, like a story like uh, one of the stories I turned to after my mom died was um, the, uh, the Light of Other Days uh, by Bob Shaw, which is a story about, about loss and memory and the double-edged sword that memory can be and is one of my favorite stories to this day. So I think that, you know, I, 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 that's what I love about literature. Plus it's fun and it's exciting. And yes, it is escapist. Uh, all literature is escapist. And as, as C.S. Lewis said, who wouldn't want to escape from a prison? Which I totally agree with. Has science fiction ever disappointed you? Uh, yes. I think there are too many zombies in it. <laughs> I think there are too many vampires in it, too many well- werewolves. I am referring, of course, to my fellow science fiction writers and not to what they write. There are just too many of those types in, in literature. And, and, of course, I'm kidding with that. Um, I would say the only disappointment I've had in science fiction is that it's, 
it when I got into the field, it was small enough that that you could read the whole field, and so you could have there was an ongoing conversation about all of the books in the field, and everybody everybody had read everything, so everybody could talk to everybody else. And when they wrote, they were writing in response to the different books, and I, I think. I liked that. I loved that. I missed that because science fiction is now huge and it's impossible to read everything. And it's also developed within itself. You know, it's bad enough we're divided into romances and chick lit and, and um, science fiction and westerns and stuff. Now science fiction has subdivided into military science fiction and libertarian science fiction and hard science fiction and soft science fiction and urban fantasy and all these things, and I, I think that's a mistake, too. I think we should be reading across the board, and, and I wish I could be reading everything, but it's impossible to catch up. But otherwise, no, it's never disappointed me. I, it's still, I love it, and I love it more than I loved it when I started. Is there still new ground to be covered in science fiction literature? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, uh, I mean, no question. Uh, the science fiction is about change and change in our lives and how change and technology affect our lives. I see no signs that change is stopping. I see no signs that technology is stopping. And as long as those two things are around, I think that science fiction will have tons of stuff to say to us. Um, um, you're, you know, you're looking right now at this huge upheaval in the publishing industry. What is going to happen to the printed word? What is going to happen to the book as artifact? Um, and what's going to happen to this new, this brave new world of, of technology and Facebook and, and virtual realities and games and texting? Um, and and I, I think in the short term, you know, we've already seen lives destroyed and political careers go tumbling because of emails, uh, and we have yet to see what, what unintended consequences there will be from Facebook and from uh, texting. Uh, well, here in, the, here in the States, we're having a huge controversy over whether it should be texting should be forbidden while driving because there are all these accidents with crazy people who don't understand that you cannot type and drive at the same time. Um, how is that going to have an impact? What, what's going to happen to the whole distribution system of how we're going to find the books and authors that we love if they're only on Kindle? You know, all of those short, those are short-term questions. <coughs> and are any of us going to survive long enough because of melting ice caps and rising sea levels and shutting down currents to find out what would happen with any of these technologies? I mean, there is more future than ever to speculate about. Um, there are, I always love it when, you know, on Star Trek they talk about space, the last frontier. There, like, there are frontiers everywhere. Um, artificial intelligence is an incredible frontier. We are just at the very, very, very beginnings of figuring out how the mind works and how our emotions work, um, all of those are going to be fascinating areas for study. And then the other thing I think is that um, that science fiction has these things that it uses. I don't want. I, I guess I'll have to call them tropes. I don't know what else to call them, but all this all this junk that it uses as props. And um, there's time travel. There's the immortality story. There's uh, robots. There's aliens. There's first contact. There are all these different things that have been around forever. And you would think, well, there are werewolves and vampires, too, <coughs> in the fantasy area. And you would think that 
we had all done as much as possible with them. I mean, they've been around forever, and yet they keep rejuvenating themselves, and they keep coming back in some brand new form, you know. Um, and I just, I'm, I'm, of course, very fascinated by time travel. And in its first incarnation, it was sort of a, well, you know, H.G. Wells was using it to look, he was writing a political book about the future. And then, and then other people were using it as sort of a tourist thing. You go to the past and you look at Waterloo or the crucifixion or something. Um, and for a long time, that's all it was. It was just, if you were going to the past, it was a tourist trip. If you were going to the future, it was just a, a science fiction novel, but you had given yourself the cover that you traveled there. Then they dropped that. They just dropped that cover and started writing stories set in the future. And, um, and then the, we kind of covered all the bases. We'd gone to all the interesting places in the past you could go to. So time travel just sort of dropped off the map. And then in the 1950s, um, a lot of short story writers picked it up and started doing something totally different with it, which is playing games with it. Uh, less interested in the go to the past and see something, but with the whole issue of um, the paradoxes, the grandfather paradox. If I go to the past and shoot my grandfather uh, before my father is ever born, then how can I exist? Well, I can't. So I can't have gone to the past to shoot him, so I didn't, but if I didn't then he did so I could so I won't but if I do etc and so um, and they played these endless games and they were wonderful games they were that's that that's the time travel stuff that I grew up on where you are you have the story that begins and ends at the same place um, and forms a time loop of its own you have the uh, uh, time stories like um, uh, all you zombies and child by Kronos where you are your own relatives <laughs> you know um, and just every, they played every version of that game that they could think of. And it was all terribly clever and interesting. And, um, and then the, everybody got bored with that. And it sort of died again. And uh, everybody kind of forgot, except for Warden Moore's um, Bring the Jubilee, in which he introduced the whole idea of alternate history, which sort of laid there like a lump for a long, long time. And then suddenly the whole alternate history industry burgeoned. And so we have all these alternate histories, and at the same time we have things like what I write, where you're going into the past, but you're going in to look at the present and the future also with, uh, through the means of the past, and you're doing a lot more with character. You're not playing games. Well, you're still playing games, but you're also really interested in writing rounded characters and interesting stories, and in the whole idea of can you possibly go to the past and not affect it, and if so... What does that mean? And if you do affect it, what does that mean? And so, you know, and, and I'm sure that eventually everybody will get tired of doing those things and time travel will, to all appearances, be dead and buried until it pops up again. I mean, maybe, maybe the fact that vampires are so popular is because we have them in our lives. There are these things that appear to be dead and then come back from the grave. And science fiction is full of those. I mean, uh, we haven't had a lot of, of planet stories lately, but they could reemerge at any moment. We, we haven't had a lot of robot stories lately, but we, they could reemerge in a brand new form at any moment. And that, I think, is one of the most fertile things about science fiction. I, I think there's new ground, and then there's old ground to be explored in a, in a new way, and science fiction is the best equipped to do that. And 
so I'm thrilled to be in the field. I have dozens of stories I still want to write, and um, I can't wait to get started on them. Connie Willis, thank you very much. Well, thank you so much. This has really been fun. There you go. You know what I love about that interview as well? And it was just the enthusiasm still, you know, Connie still got that enthusiasm and the excitement, you know, and the buzz. It's it's if she's just sold, you know, it honestly, from listening to that interview, that interview, sorry, it just feels like Connie sold a first story, you know, a first short story. That's the, still the excitement she's got there. And like, that's what you need. You know what I mean? That, that's how you get in this game and you get kind of, you just got to keep on going and going. And literally that's, I guess that's with me as well, with doing the show, the excitement I get from doing the show. Still to this day, the excitement is there. You know what I mean? I am so happy doing Starship's over. And, you know, I guess look, proof in the pudding, look where it's got with, do you know a fantastic community. I'm so proud of you all, you know, kind of you're grouping in and helping out, just listening as well. And then we go and win that bloody award as well. Wow. We're going to move on now to the main fiction, which is The Late Cage Baker and a story called Smart Alec. You know, it was just a horrible experience. I, I contacted her a number of times and got stories off and Cage was so nice to kind of donate stories. This story is just, you know, it's, it's narrated by MCL and it's just, you just get lost in this, you know, the production, Martin's production, you know, Martin kind of knows everything in kind of audio production. He's just made this a great story. And it's like, you see, it's so happy that way. This is a fantastic story, but it's so, that's it. You know, Cage Baker passed away, you know, and that's all we've got left. So hopefully, you know, you'll appreciate the story and you'll love the story. Drop us an email about it. You know, it, it'd be much appreciated. So the Starship Sofa and her oral delight is very proud to present Smart Alec by Cage Baker. For the first four years of his life, Alec Checkerfield wore a life vest. This was so that if he accidentally went over the side of his parents' yacht, he would be guaranteed a rescue. It was state-of-the-art, as life vests went in the 24th century. Not only would it have enabled him to bob along like a little cork in the wake of the foxy lady, it would have reassured him in a soothing voice programmed to allay panic, broadcast a frequency that repelled sharks, and sounded an immediate alarm on the paging device worn by every one of the servants on board. His parents themselves wore no pages, which was just as well, because if Mummy had noticed Alex in, in the water, she'd probably have simply waved her handkerchief after him until he was well over the horizon. Daddy would probably have made an effort to rescue Alec if he weren't too stoned to notice the emergency, but most of the time he was, which was why the servants had been appointed to save Alec should the child ever fall overboard. They were all madly fond of Alec anyway, because he was really a very good little boy, so they were sure to have done a great job if the need for rescue at sea should ever arisen. It never did arise, however, because Alec was rather a well-coordinated child too, and generally did what he was told, such as obeying safety rules at sea. 
and he was a happy child. Despite the fact that his mother never set her ice-blue eyes on him if she could help it, and his father was as likely to trip over him as speak to him, it didn't matter that they were terrible at being parents. They were also very rich, which meant they could pay other people to love Alec. In a later time, Alec would look back on the years aboard the Foxy Lady as the happiest in his life, and sometimes he'd come across the old group hollow and wonder why it had all ended. The picture had been taken in Jamaica by somebody standing on a mooring catwalk and shooting down on deck. There he was, three years old, in his bright red life vest and little sailor hat, smiling brightly up at the camera. Assembled around him were all the servants, fabulous Sarah, his Jamaican nurse, arrogantly naked except for blue bathing shorts, Lewin and Mrs. Lewin, the butler and cook, Reggie, Bob and Cat, the deckhands, and Mr. Trefusis, the first mate. They formed a loving and protective wall between Alex and his mummy and daddy, or Roger and Cecilia, as they preferred to be called. Roger and Cecilia were visible up on the quarter-deck, Cecilia ignoring them all from her deck-chair, a cold presence in a sun-hat and dark glasses, reading a novel. Roger was less visible, leaning slouched against the rail, one nerveless hand about to spill a rum highball over his yachting shoes. He'd turned his face away to look at something just as the image had been recorded, so all you could see was a glimpse of aristocratic profile, blurred and enigmatic. No, oh, but it hadn't mattered. Alec had had a wonderful life, full of adventures. Sarah would tell him stories about Sir Henry Morgan and all the pirates who used to roam the sea, living on their ships just like Alec did, and how they formed the Free Brotherhood of the Coast. Alec liked that. That was a grand-sounding name. And there was the fun of landing on a new island. What would it be like? Was there any chance there might be pirates still lurking about? Alec had played on beaches where the sand was white or yellow or pink or black, built castles on all of them and stuck his little pirate flags on their turrets. Jolly Roger, that's what the flag was called. Jolly Roger was also what the deckhands called Alec's daddy when he seemed to be having more than usual difficulty walking or talking. This was generally after he'd been drinking the tall drinks Cat would shake up for him at the bar on the yacht. Sometimes Cat would put a fruit spear in the drinks, cherries and chunks of pineapple skewered on long wooden picks with the pirate paper flag at the top. Sometimes Daddy's eyes would focus on Alec and he'd present him with the fruit spear and yell for more rum in his drink. Alec would sit under Daddy's tall chair and eat the pineapple and cherries, making faces at the nasty stuff they'd been soaked in. Then he'd carry the Jolly Roger pick back to his cabin, where he had a whole horde of them carefully saved up for his sandcastles. It was a shame the rum had such an effect on Daddy, because going to get it was always fun. The foxy lady would drop anchor at some sapphire bay, and Sarah would put on a halter top and shoes, and put shoes on Alec, and they'd go ashore together in the launch. 
And as they come across the water, Sarah might sing out, How many houses, baby? And Alec would look up at the town and count the houses in his head and he'd tell her how many there were and she'd tousle his hair and tell him he was right again. And they'd laugh. Then there'd be a long walk through some island town past the gracious houses with window boxes full of pink flowers where parrots flashed and screamed in the green gardens back to the whoppin' boppin' places where the houses looked like they were about to fall down. And there'd always be a doormouth with no sign and a dark, cool room beyond full of quiet black men sitting at tables or brown men or white men turned red from the sun. There, Sarah would do a deal, and Alec and Sarah would sit at a table while the men loaded crates into a battered old vehicle. Then Alec and Sarah would go out into the bright sunlight again, and the driver would give them a ride back into town with the crates. The crates were nearly always stenciled Cross and Blackwell's Pickled Gherkins. And nearly always they'd spot a stern-looking black or brown or white man in a white uniform pedalling along on a bicycle and Sarah would hug Alec tight and cry out in a little silly voice, Oh no, it's a policeman! Don't tell him, Alec! Don't tell him our secret! This always made Alec giggle and she'd always go on, Don't tell him we've got guns! Don't tell him we've got explosives! Don't tell him we've got ganja! Don't tell him we've got coffee. She'd go on and on like this as they bump along trailing dust clouds and squawking birds. And by the time they reached the harbour, Alec would be weak with laughter. Once they were at the launch, however, she'd be all quiet efficiency, buckling Alec into his seat and then helping the man move the crates into the cargo bay. When all the crates were on board, the man would hold out a plaquette and Sarah would bring out Daddy's identification disc and pay for the crates. And then they'd zoom back out to the foxy lady. They'd put out to sea again, and the next day there would be rows of brown bottles under the bar once more. And Cat would be busy shaking up the long drinks, and Daddy would be sitting on the aft deck with a glass in his hand, staring vacantly out at the blue horizon. Not everybody thought that the trips to get rum were such a good idea, however. Alec was sitting in the saloon one day after just such a trip, quietly colouring. He'd made a big picture of a shark fighting with an anchor because he knew how to draw anchors and he knew how to draw sharks and that was all the logic the scene needed. The saloon was just after the galley. Because it was a very warm day, the connecting door was open and he could hear Lewin and Mrs Lewin talking in disgusted tones. He only gets away with it because he's a peer. Peer or no, you'd think he'd stop it for the kid's sake. He was just a brilliant teacher too. Um, what's he given that all up for? He used to do something with his life and look at him now. And what would happen if we were ever boarded for inspection? They'd take away the baby in a minute. You know they would. Chop, chop, chop. Mrs Lewin was cutting up peppers as she talked. Don't think so. J.I.S. would smooth it over, same as they've always done. Well, between his lineage and them, he can do whatever he bloody well pleases, even in London. Yeah, well, things was different before Alec came, weren't they? Don't forget that J.I.S. would have something to say if they knew he was drinking where the baby could see. 
Anyway, it's wrong, Malcolm. You know it is. It's criminal. It's dangerous. It's unhealthy. And really, the best thing we could do for him would be to tell a public health monitor about the alcohol. And where'd we be then? The last thing J.I.S. had wanted be some public health doctor examining the boy. Lewin started through the doorway and saw Alec in the saloon. He caught his breath and shut the door. Alec sat frowning at his picture. He knew that Daddy's drinking made people sad, but he'd never thought it was dangerous. He got up and trotted out of the saloon. There was Daddy on the aft deck, smiling dreamingly at the sun above the yardarm. Hello there, Alec, he greeted the little boy. He had a sip of his drink and reached out to tousle Alec's hair. Look out there to starboard. Is that a pretty good island? Should we go there, maybe? Yeah, he cried. Let's go. But Daddy's gaze had drifted away back to the horizon and he lifted his glass again. Some green island we haven't found yet, he murmured. Farther on, farther on, farther on. Alec remembered what he'd wanted to ask. He reached out and pushed at Daddy's glass with his index finger. Is that criminal? he inquired. It was a moment before Daddy played that back and turned to stare at him. What? Is that dangerous? Alex persisted, and mimed perfectly the drinking from a bottle gesture that he'd seen the servants make in reference to his father. If I see danger, I'm supposed to tell. Huh? said Daddy, as he rubbed his scratchy chin. He hadn't shaved in about a week. His eyes narrowed, and he looked at Alec slyly. Tell me, Alec, am I hurting anybody? No. We ever had an accident on this ship? Anything happen old Roger can't handle? Nope. Then where's the harm? Daddy had another sip. Tell me that. My nice guy, even when I'm stoned. A gentleman, you know. Old school tie. Alec had no idea what that meant, but he pushed on. How come it's criminal? Aha! Daddy tilted his glass until the ice fell down against his lip. He crunched ice and continued. Okay, Alec, big fact of life. There's a whole bunch of busybodies and scaddy cats who make a whole bunch of rules and regs about things they don't want anybody doing. See, so nobody gets to have any fun. Like no booze. They made a law about no booze. And they're all you can't lie about in the sun because you get cancer. And you can't eat sweets because they make you fat, okay? Dumb stuff. And they make laws. So you go to hospital if you do this little dumb stuff, okay? That's why we don't live in London, kiddo. That's why we live out here on the lady, so no scaredy cat's gonna tell us what to do. Okay? Now then, if you went running to the scaredy cats to tell them about the rum, you'd be an even worse thing than them. You'd be a telltale. See? And you gotta remember, 
You're a gentleman, and no gentleman is ever a telltale. See? Because if you tell about the rum, well, they'd come on board and they'd see me with my little harmless drinkies and they'd see your mummy with her books and they'd see Sarah with her lovely bare tits. And then you know what they'd do? Daddy'd go to hospital and they'd take you away. Little Ali King going to be a telltale, is he? He's my little gentleman, ain't he? I don't want him to take me away, Alec wailed, tears in his eyes. Daddy dropped his glass, reaching clumsily to pull Alec up on his lap, and the glass broke, but he didn't notice. Of course you don't, cause we're free here on the Foxy Lady, and you're a gentleman, you've got a right to be free, 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 okay? You won't tell on Daddy. Not my little Alec. You just let old Jolly Roger go his ways and you never be a telltale, okay? And don't pay them no mind with their dumb rules. But they're going to board us for an inspection, Alec sobbed. Hey, kiddo, don't you worry. Daddy's a gentleman, don't forget. He's got some pull. I'm the bloody Earl of Finsbury, okay? And a CEO at JIS. And I'll tell you something else. Jovian Integrated Systems gonna have something to say too. No one's gonna touch little Alec. He's such a special kid. That was right. Alec was a special kid. All the servants said so. For one thing, all other little boys were brought into this world by the stork. But not Alec. He'd come in by agcopter. Reggie told him so. Yeah, son, Reggie had chuckled, looking around to be certain Sarah was nowhere within earshot. The stork called your daddy and say, Come out to Cromwell Cay, and your daddy take the launch out where the copter was waiting on the cay at midnight, with a red light blinking, and he, when he come back, he brings Sarah with our little bundle of joy, Alec, and we all get nice fat checks too. Alec wiped his nose and was comforted. Daddy set him on the deck and yelled to Cat for another drink and told Alec to go play now somewhere. Alec would dearly have liked to stay and talk with Daddy. That had been the longest conversation they'd ever had together. And he had all kinds of questions. What was Jovian Integrated Systems? Why were some laws important, like wearing the life vest, and other laws were dumb? Why were gentlemen free? But Alec was a considerate and obedient little boy, so he didn't ask, but went off to play, determined never, ever to be a telltale or a scaredy-cat. Very shortly after that, the happy life came to an end. It happened quite suddenly, too. One day, Mummy abruptly put down her novel, got up out of her jet chair, stalked over to Daddy, where he sat watching a Caribbean sunset. It's over, Rog, she said. He turned a wondering face to her. Huh? he said. 
After a moment of staring into her eyes, he sighed. Okay. And the foxy lady set a course that took her into grey waters, under cold skies, and Sarah packed up most of Alec's toys, so he only had a few to play with, and got out his heaviest clothes. And one day they saw a very big island off the port bow. Sarah held him up and said, Look, there's England. Alec saw pale cliffs and a meek little country beyond them, rolling fields stretching away into a cloudy distance, and way off the grey, blocky mass of cities. The air didn't smell familiar at all. He stood shivering as Sarah buttoned him into an anorak and watched the strange coastline unroll. The Thames pulled them into London, and it was the biggest place Alec had ever seen. As the sun was setting, they steered into Tower Marina, and the long journey ended with a gentle bump against the rubber pilings. Alec went to bed that night feeling very strange. The foxy lady seemed to have become silent and heavy, motionless, stone-like, like the stone city all around them, and for the first time that he could ever remember, the blue sea was gone. There were new smells, too, and they frightened him inexplicably. His cabin was full of the cold, strange air when he woke up, and the sky was grey. Everyone seemed to be in a hurry and rather cross. Sarah bundled Alec into very thick, heavy clothes indeed, leaving his life vest in the closet, and she herself put on more clothes than he'd ever seen her wear. Daddy was wearing strange new clothes, too, stiff and uncomfortable-looking ones, and he'd shaved. There was no breakfast cooking in the galley. Lewin had been ashore and come back with a box of Bentham's brand treats. At least they're fresh baked, he cried, and a dozen cups of herbal tea, steeping in white paper cups. Breakfast was served, or rather handed round, at the big table in the saloon. Now Alec was impressed. Normally only Daddy and Mummy dined in here, but today he and Sarah were at the table too. Mummy, however, was nowhere to be seen, and when Alec inquired about this, Daddy just stared at him bleakly. Your Mummy's gone to visit some friends, Sarah informed him. He didn't care for his breakfast at all. He thought it smelt like dead grass. But he was too well-mannered a child to say so and hurt Lewin's feelings. Fortunately, there wasn't much time to eat because the car arrived and there was a lot of bustle and rush to load suitcases and trunks into its luggage compartment. And finally, he was led down the gangway and across the pier to where the car waited. It was nothing at all like the rusted hacks in which he'd ridden in the islands. This was a Rolls-Royce exquisite levitation, black and gleaming, with Daddy's crest on the door and a white man in a uniform like a policeman at the steering console. Alec had to fight panic as he was handed in and fastened into his seat. Sarah got in. Daddy got in. Lewin and Mrs. Lewin crowded into the front beside the driver, and the rolls lifted into mid-air and sped silently away. That was the end of life on board the Foxy Lady. Alec had come home to England. 
The Bloomsbury House only dated from 2042, but it had been deliberately built in an old-fashioned style because it was an Earl's townhouse after all, so it was a good deal taller and fancier than all the other houses in the street. Alec still hadn't explored all its rooms by the time he noticed one morning that Daddy wasn't at the breakfast table, and when he asked about it, Sarah informed him, "'Your Daddy's away on a business trip.' It was only later, and by chance, that he found out Daddy hadn't lasted a week in London before he'd gone straight back to Tower Marina and put out to sea again on the foxy lady. Then Alec had cried, but Sarah had had a talk with him about how important it was that he live in London now that he was getting to be a big boy. Besides, she said, taking the new heavy clothes out of the shopping bags they'd come in and hanging them up in his closet, your poor daddy was so unhappy here after your mummy had gone. Where did mummy go? asked Alec, not because he missed her at all, but because he was beginning to be a little apprehensive about the way pieces of his world had begun vanishing. He picked up a shoe box and handed it to Sarah. She took it without looking at him, but he could see her face in the closet mirror. She closed her eyes tight and said, "'She's divorced your daddy, baby.' "'What's that mean?' "'That means she doesn't want to live with him any more. "'She's going to go away and live with some other people.' Sarah swallowed hard. "'After all, she was never happy on that foxy lady after you came along.' Alex stared at her dumbfounded. After a moment he asked, "'Why didn't Mummy like me? Everybody else does.' Sarah looked as though she wanted to cry, but in a light, normal tone of voice, she told him, "'Well, um, I think she just never wanted to have children. "'Some women are like that, you know. "'All the noise and the mess a baby makes, "'and then a little boy running around and getting into everything. "'Well, she and your daddy used to be very happy, "'but after you came, it was spoiled for them.' Alec felt as though the ceiling had fallen in on him. "'What a terrible thing he'd done!' "'I'm sorry,' he said, and burst into tears. "'And then Sarah's arms were around him, "'and she was rocking him, crooning to him, "'hiding him in her breasts. "'I'm sorry, too,' she wept. "'Oh, Alec, you mustn't mind. "'You're a good little boy, you hear me? "'You're my sweet, sweet, good little whingy boy, "'and Sarah will always love you no matter what. "'Don't you ever forget that. "'When you grow up,' Maybe you'll understand. Sometimes people have to obey orders and, and say things they don't want to say and all. And, and Her voice caught. I'm, I'm sure you'll always be a good little boy, won't you? You make your poor daddy happy again. Uh-huh, Alec gasped. It was the very least he could do after he'd made Daddy so unhappy. His tears felt very hot on his cheeks in that cold room, and Sarah's tears were like the hot rain that used to fall off Jamaica when there'd be lightning in the sky, and Daddy would be yelling for him to get below because there was a storm coming. But a terrible storm did come and swept away another part of the world. "'What the hell did you go and tell him that for?' Lewin was shouting. Alec cowered on the stairs, covering his mouth with his hands. It was the truth, Sarah in a, said in a funny, unnatural voice. You'd have found out sometime. My God, that's all the poor baby needs to think he's responsible for the way that cold bitch acted, raged Mrs Lewin. Even if it was true, how could you tell him such a thing, Sarah? How could you?
So then Sarah was gone too. And that was his fault for being a telltale. He woke up early next morning because the front door slammed, booming through the house like a cannon shot. Something made him get out of his bed and run across the icy floor to the window. He looked down into the street and there was Sarah swinging away down the pavement in her lithe stride, bag over her shoulder. He called to her, but she never looked back. Everyone was very kind to him to make up for it. When he'd be sad and cry, Mrs Lewin would gather him up into her lap and let him cry and tell him everything was all right. Lewin told him what a brave little guy he was and helped him fix up his room with glowing star patterns on the ceiling and a big electronic painting of a sailing ship on his wall with waves that moved and little people going to and fro on the deck. The other servants were nice too, especially the young footman, Derek, and Lulu, the parlour maid. Sometimes Lewin would hand them Alec's identification disc and tell them to take him out for the day so he could learn about London. They took him to the London Zoo to see the animal hollows and to the British Museum and Buckingham Palace to see where Mary III lived or over to the Globe Theatre Museum to meet and talk to the hollow of Mr Shakespeare. They took him shopping and brought him exercise equipment and toys and a complete hollow set for his room with a full library of hollows to watch. There were 13 different versions of Treasure Island to choose from. Once Alec knew what it was about, he wanted them all. The older versions were the most exciting, like the blood-curdling tales Sarah had used to tell him about the Spanish main. Even so, they all had a prologue edited in that told him how evil and cruel pirates had really been and how Long John Silver was not really a hero. And gradually the broken circle began to fill in again because everybody in the house in Bloomsbury loved Alec and wanted him to be happy. He loved them too and was so grateful that they were able to love him back considering how unhappy he'd made his daddy. Oh, there was a lot to be grateful for even if London was a strange place to live in. He was learning a lot about living there and now he understood why Daddy had preferred to live at sea. Everybody was always on at him in the friendliest possible way about what a lot there was to do in London compared to on a cramped old boat. But it seemed to him that there was a lot more not to do in London. There was grass, but you mustn't walk on it. There were flowers, but you mustn't pick them. There were trees, but you mustn't climb them. You must wear shoes all the time because it was dirty and dangerous not to. And you mustn't leave the house without a tube of personal sanitizer to rub on your hands after you'd touched anything that other people might have touched. You couldn't eat or drink a lot of the things you used to, like fish or milk, because they were illegal. You mustn't ever get fat or out of shape because that was immoral. You mustn't ever tell ladies they had nice bubbies or you'd go to the hospital and never come out again. Mustn't play with other children because they carried germs. Anyway, other children didn't want to play with you either because you carried germs they didn't want. You were encouraged to visit historical sites as long as you didn't play with anybody but the holograms. 
It had been interesting talking to Mr Shakespeare, but Alec couldn't quite grasp why nobody was allowed to perform any of his plays anymore, or why Shakespeare had felt obliged to explain why it had been unfair to build his theatre, since doing so had robbed the people of low-income housing. He'd seemed so forlorn as he'd waved goodbye to Alec, a transparent man in funny old clothes. There was something to apologise for everywhere you turned. The whole world seemed to be as guilty as Alec was, even though nobody he met seemed to have made their own mummies and daddies divorce. Uh, no, no, that was Alec's own particular awful crime. Oh, that and telling on Sarah so she had to go away. He really was doing his very best to be good and happy, but he felt as though he were a beach float with a tiny pinprick hole in it somewhere. You couldn't see where it was, but little by little all the air was going out of him, and he was sinking down, and soon he'd be a very flat little boy. One morning at the breakfast table, when Lewin had said in his jolliest old grandad voice, "'And where would you like to go today, Alec?' Alec had replied, "'Can we go down to the river and look at the ships?' "'Of course you can. Want Derek and Lulu to take you?' "'No. Just you, please.' Lewin was very pleased at that, and as soon as Alec had helped him clear away the breakfast plates, they put on their coats and called for the car. In minutes, they'd been whisked down to the Thames, where all the pleasure craft were moored. Their driver switched off the ag motor, the car settled gently to the ground, and Alec and Lewin got out and walked along. Oh, no, look at that one. She's a beauty, huh? Three masts. Do you know, back in the old days, a ship like that would have had to have carried a great big crew just to manage her sails. They'd have slept packed into a hold like dominoes in a box, and there had to be that many. And when a storm was coming and the captain wanted to strike the sails, do you know what he'd have to do? He'd have to order his sailors to climb up into the rigging and cling there like monkeys in a tree and reef every one of those sails themselves with their own hands, clinging on as tight as they could whilst they did it. Sometimes men would fall off, and, but the ships just sailed on. Wow, said Alec. He'd never seen Reggie or Bob or Cat do much more than load cargo or mix drinks. Suddenly his face brightened with comprehension. So that's why the squire has to have all those guys on the Hispaniola, even if they're really pirates. Lewin stared for a moment before he realised what Alec meant. <laughs> Treasure Island, right. Yeah, yeah, he agreed. That was why. Uh, no um, robot guidance to do it all. No computer tracking the wind and weather and deciding whether to shorten sail or to clap it on. You had to have people doing it. Nobody would let you build ships like this anymore if, if that was how they worked. Cool, said Alec. They walked on past the rows of pleasure craft where they sat at moorings and Lewin pointed out this or that kind of rigging or this or that latest luxury feature available to people who could afford such things. He pointed out the sort of ship he'd own himself, if he had the money, and pointed out the sort of ship Alec ought to own when he grew up and became the seventh Earl of Finsbury. But they went on a while, and Alec began to lag behind, not because he was tired, for he was an extraordinarily strong child with a lot of stamina, but because he was fighting the need to cry. 
He'd been playing a game inside himself, imagining that the very next ship they'd see would be the foxy lady and his daddy would be on board, having just dropped anchor for a surprise visit. Now, of course, he knew his daddy was somewhere in the Caribbean. He knew the lady wouldn't really be there. But what if she were? And, of course, she never was. But maybe the next ship would be. Or the next. Or the next. But Alec wasn't very good at lying to himself. Alec? Lewin turned around to see where Alec had gone. What's wrong? He walked close swiftly and saw the tears standing in Alec's pale blue eyes and understood at once. You poor little sod, he muttered in compassion and reached for a tissue and held it out to the child. Alec misunderstood his gesture and buried his face in Lewin's coat, wrapping his arms around him. Jesus, Lewin gasped and looked around wildly. He attempted to pry Alec loose. Alec, let go. For God's sake, let go. Do you want me to get arrested? Alec fell back from him, bewildered. Is it against the law to hug in London? It's against the law for any unlicensed adult to embrace a child. Lewin told him soberly. If there'd been a public health officer looking our way, I'd be in trouble right now. But, Sarah, you used to hug me all the time. Uh, Mrs Lewin does. Uh, Sarah was a professional child care specialist, Alec. She'd, she'd, she'd passed all, all sorts of scans and screening to get her licence, the uh, uh, same as mummies and daddies have to do before they're allowed to have children. And the missus, well, she only hugged you at home where nobody can see. Alec gulped, wiping away his tears. He understood now. It must be a law like no booze or bare tits that you mustn't be a telltale about. I'm sorry, he said shakily. I didn't think it would get anybody in trouble. I, I know, old man, I, I, I know. Lewin crouched down to Alec's eye level, although he kept a good metre between them. It's a good law, though, you see. You have to understand that it was passed because people used to do terrible, horrible things to little kids back in the old days. Like the two little boys in the tower, said Alec, rubbing his coat sleeve across his eyes. Um, yeah, sort of. Lewin glanced downriver in the direction of Tower Marina. He decided that Alec had had quite enough sad memories for the day. Pulling out his communicator, he called for the car to come and take them home. That night, Lewin sat down at the household console. Thin-lipped with anger, he typed in a message to Roger Checkerfield, advising him that it might be a good idea to communicate with Alec once in a while. The bright letters shimmered on the screen a moment before vanishing, speeding through the ether to the bridge of the foxy lady. Lewin sat up all night waiting for a reply, but none ever came. Alec? Alec turned his face from contemplation of the painting on his wall. It seemed to him that if he just could pay just close enough attention to it, long enough, he would be able to go into the picture, to hear the steady crash of the sea under the ship's prow, to hear the wind singing in her shrouds and ratlines, smell the salt breeze, and he could open the little cabin door and slip inside, or better yet take the wheel and sail away forever from sad London. Blue water. But Lewin and Mrs Lewin looked so hopeful, so pleased with themselves, 
that he smiled politely and stood up. Come see, sweetheart, said Mrs. Lewin. Someone sent you a present. So he took her hand and they went up the fourth floor of the house to what was going to be his schoolroom next year. It had been freshly painted and papered. The workmen had built the cabinetry for the big screen and console that would link him to his school, but nothing had been installed yet. In one corner, though, there was a cosy little Alex-sized table and chair, and on the table was an enormous bright yellow flower, bigger than Alex's head. It was all folded up the way flowers are in the early morning, so you couldn't tell what sort of flower it was. Protruding from the top was a little card with letters inscribed on it, A-L-E-C. Now, who do you suppose that's from, eh? wondered Lewin, though, in fact, he'd purchased it for Alec himself without consulting Roger. Alec was speechless. Think your daddy sent it, eh? Where was the harm in a kind lie? Go on, dear, take the card, Mrs Lewin prodded him gently. It's for you, after all. Alec walked forward and pulled the card loose. There was nothing written on it except his name, but at the moment he took it, the flower began to open slowly, just like a real flower, and the big bright petals unfolded and spread out to reveal what had been hidden in its heart. It looked like a silver egg, or perhaps a very fat little rocket. Its gleaming surface looked so smooth, Alec felt compelled to put out his hand and stroke it. The moment he did so, a pleasant bell tone sounded. "'Good morning,' said an even more pleasant voice. "'Pembroke Technologies extends its congratulations "'to the thoughtful parent who has selected this Pembroke playfriend "'for his or her small child. "'Our playfriend is designed to encourage creativity and socialisation "'as well as provide hours of entertainment, "'but it will also stimulate cerebrocortical development "'during these critical first years of the child's life. "'If needed,' The playfriend is also qualified to serve as an individual tutor in all standard educational systems. Customising for specialised educational systems is also available. The playfriend offers the following unique features. An interface identity template that may be customised to the parent's preferences and the child's individual needs. Cyber environment capability with use of the playfriend optics, included in models 4, 5 and 6 and available for all other models by special order. Direct nerve stimulus interface with use of the attractive empowerment ring included in all models. Universal access port for parallel processing with any other cyber system. In addition, the playfriend will maintain around-the-clock surveillance of the child's unique health parameters and social behaviour. Warning systems are in place and fully operational. Corrective counselling will be administered in the event of psychologically detrimental social encounters and positive emotional growth will be encouraged. Aptitude evaluation is another feature of the playfriend with appropriate guidance. Intellectual challenges in a non-competitive context will promote the child's self-esteem and success potential. The interface identity template will continually adjust and grow more complex to complement the child's emerging personality, growing as it grows, until both are ready for, and may be upgraded to, the Pembroke Young Persons Companion. Interaction with the Pembroke Playfriend during the developmental years virtually guarantees a lifetime of self-fulfilment and positive achievement. The voice fell silent. Mrs Lewin gave an embarrassed little laugh. 
My goodness, I don't think I understand one word in ten of that. Did you, Alec, dear? Nope, said Alec solemnly. That's all right, said Lewin, advancing on the silver egg. All it meant was that Alec's going to have a wonderful time with this thing. Now, you just sit down and have a closer look at it, shall we? OK, said Alec. But he sat down reluctantly. He was a little intimidated by the adult voice that had spoken out of nowhere. Lewin tousled his hair. Don't be scared. Uh, look here, what's this? He tapped the side of the egg and a little slot opened in it and something rolled out. It was a ring. It appeared to be made of glass or high-impact polymer and was a vivid jewel blue. As Lewin picked it up, it began to change. By the time he'd presented it to Alec, it was a deep, transparent red. Cool, said Alec, smiling at it involuntarily. Do you suppose it fits you? Go on then, try it on. Alec was game. He put on the ring. It seemed to him that it tightened uncomfortably for a moment and then eased up until he barely knew it was there. Hello, Alec, said a funny little voice. Pleased to meet you. We're going to be best friends, you and I. Alec looked panic-stricken at Lewin and Mrs Lewin. Was he supposed to talk to it? But what was it? They smiled encouragingly at him, and he could tell that they did so want him to like this, so he said, Uh, hello, what's your name? Well, I haven't got one yet, said the little voice. Will you give me a name? What? Will you give me a name? We'll just leave the two of you to have a nice chat, shall we? said Lewin, and he and Mrs Lewin backed out of the schoolroom and closed the door. Uh, but, but I don't know what you are, said Alec, a little desperately. Can't I see you? Certainly you can. I'm your play friend, after all. What would you like me to look like? I might be nearly anybody. There was a click and a blur of light appeared in front of the table, formless, woven of fire, gradually assuming a human shape. What do you like? Do you like space exploration? Do you like dinosaurs? Do you like animals? I could be a fire person, or a police person, if you like, or transport driver, or a scientist. Could you be a pirate? Alec inquired cautiously. Mm, incorrect and unsuitable role model, thought the machine. Out loud it said, I can be a jolly sea captain. Here I am. Pop! The human shape became detailed. It was a little old man with a blue navy coat, white trousers and big black sea boots. He wore a white yachting cap, rather like the one Alec's daddy had owned, but seldom worn, and he had a neatly groomed white beard. "'Now then, Alec, what about me?' The voice had changed to a kindly baritone with a Devon accent. "'Well, I do?' Alec was so astonished it took him a moment to reply. "'Um, sure,' he said at last. Then he remembered his manners and added, "'Won't you sit down?' Optimum response, thought the play friend, rather pleased, and it smiled encouragingly. What a polite fellow you are, Alec. Thank you. I will sit down. A slightly bigger version of Alec's chair appeared, and the sea captain settled back in it. There. Have you thought of a name for me yet? No. Alec shook his head. Well, that's all right. Perhaps, as we get to know each other, you'll think of a good one. After all, I'm your special friend, just for you.
Alec wrinkled his brow worriedly. "'You don't have to decide on a name all at once,' the playfriend hastened to assure him. "'We have plenty of time.' "'But don't you want to be yourself?' Alec asked it. "'Oh, yes, but I won't really be myself until you decide who I ought to be. "'I'm your playfriend.' "'But people don't belong to other people.' In the brief silence that followed, the playfriend thought, possible low self-esteem. It made a little tick against its evaluation of Alec. Negative, insufficient creativity, insufficient imagination, failure to grasp initiative. Positive, developing social consciousness, consideration of others, good citizenship. And it filed all that away. As it did so, its eyes, which had been the grey of the North Sea, turned as blue as the Caribbean. Oh, Alec smiled. You like this colour better? The sea captain smiled too. Aha! Uh -huh. Gerd. The machine experimented with a mild subliminal sound effect, a distant crash of breakers and a faint crying of gulls. Its sensors observed some of the tension going out of the little boy and activated the system of relays that provided it with an analogue of self-satisfaction. Initiate self-image analysis. Why don't you tell me about yourself, Alec? Are you happy? Yes, Alec said dutifully. And because of the neural link-up it had formed with Alec through the empowerment ring, the playfriend knew at once that he was lying. It became very alert, scanning him for evidence of physical abuse, but Alec showed no sign of any, so the machine pushed on. What do you think makes people unhappy? the sea captain said. "'Living in London,' said Alec at once. "'Anything else?' Alec thought about it. "'Babies making noise and mess "'and little boys running around and getting into everything. Uh, "'Divorces.' "'Ah,' said the playfriend, "'coordinating this response with the data Lewin had input "'when he'd set up its programme. "'The subroutine that had been called up to probe discreetly for "'and report evidence of child abuse went back on standby.' "'What else can you tell me about yourself, Alec?' "'I'm five years old,' Alec replied. "'My daddy is a gentleman, but he isn't here now. "'I'm going to go to St Stephen's Academy next year, "'after Lewin buys me a tie. "'I've got to always be a good boy "'and make up for making daddy sad. "'And I used to live on the foxy lady. "'And I used to have Sarah here with me. "'And I go out sometimes.' The machine analysed this meticulously and noticed what was missing. Can you tell me anything about your mummy? What was there to say? She was very smart and could read. And she didn't want to have children, said Alec at last. Like Lewin, the playfriend decided that Alec had had quite enough unhappy memories for one day. Well, let's do something else, he said filing the self-imaging profile for further analysis at a later time. What would you like to do, Alec? Why don't you tell me about you, said Alec, because he thought that that would be polite. People always like to talk about themselves. Positive. Further evidence of advanced social skills. Mm. Why, certainly, the prey friend said heartily. 
I'm a wise old sea captain. I sail about delivering cargo and passengers to distant lands. I help scientists do marine research, and I help protect endangered sea creatures. That's nice," said Alec. "But you aren't really a sea captain, are you? You're a Pembroke playfriend." He pointed at the silver egg. "Is that what you really are?" Negative. Insufficient imagination. Why, this is where I am, of course, Alec. The machine smiled and made a wide gesture. But I'm in there too, and in a way, your whole world is in there. Look here. Would you like to see how a Pembroke playfriend works? Yes, please. Hmm. Possible aptitude for cyber science. Initiate investigation. Well then. The machine gestured, and a little drawer opened near the base of the egg. Just take hold of these playfriend optics and put them on, and we'll have a jolly adventure into cyberspace. The playfriend optics were made of the same fascinating red-blue substance as the empowerment ring. Alec reached for them readily enough and put them on as he'd been told, because he was generally an obedient child. Ah, everything's black. He remarked, not wanting to seem rude. Everything was black because the machine was experiencing certain unexpected difficulties. The moment the optics had come into contact with Alex's skin, a system of neural connections began to be established. Microscopic pathways directly into his brain, just as had happened with the empowerment ring, but far more direct and complex. This was a perfectly safe procedure. Hundreds of happy children all over the world went into cyberspace with their play friends every day. Each play friend knew exactly how to take a child into its world because it had a precise and detailed roadmap of the human brain that showed it exactly where to link up. However, Alex's play friend was discovering that its map seemed to be somewhat inaccurate as regarded Alex's brain. This was because. Alex's brain was not technically human. Not a problem, the playfriend assured him. We're just adjusting to each other. Abnormality, function, functional, disability, parameters, organic, specify, define. Hello, it thought to itself. My goodness, Alex, what an unusual little boy you are. Alex knew that. Everyone had already told him that he was a special kid. Privately, he thought everyone was wrong. He'd never noticed anything out of the ordinary about himself. On the other hand, he knew no other children, so he had no basis for comparison. He sighed and waited patiently for the machine to sort itself out. The machine paused in its desperate attempt to analyse what it had encountered. It activated relays that would alert Lewin to its recommendation that Alec be hospitalised for immediate evaluation of his cerebral anomaly as soon as he ended his session with the playfriend. Unfortunately, one should never pause during a race. It had no idea it was in a race. That all the while it was trying to make sense of Alec's brain, Alec's brain was trying to make sense of it with the same speed that had enabled him to count all the houses on a hillside at a glance. Even if the playfriend had realised the race was going on, it would have laughingly rejected as impossible the idea that it might lose. But Alec was beginning to notice that there was something there in the darkness to look at, something he could almost make out if he only tried a bit harder. Ooh, Alec said happily as he decrypted the playfriend's sight defence. 
Lots of winking lights in lovely colours. Great visual pleasure after all that blackness. After a moment, his brain took charge and put it in all in context for him. He stood on the bridge of a ship, not all that different from the bridge of the foxy lady, and the sea captain stood there with him. The sea captain looked rather worried, but kept smiling. It had no idea where this cybersite was. It couldn't really have brought Alex into its own defended inner space. It was impossible for any child to break in, so Alec couldn't have done that, though in fact Alec had. Therefore, this must be some sort of visual analogue of its own space, summoned up as a teaching tool only. As its higher functions grappled desperately with the fact that it had encountered a situation it had no protocols for, it was continuing to run its standard aptitude elevation program to see if Alec ought to be trained for a career in cyber science. Controls, said Alec, running along the bank of gleaming lights. Are these your controls? The sea captain hurried after him. Uh, yes. Um, uh, would you like to learn about cybernetics? Y yes, please. What's that do? Alec pointed at a vast panel lit up with every imaginable shade of blue. Ah, uh, uh, that's the memory for my identity template, the sea captain told him. That's what makes me look the way I do. And that's what makes me learn and grow with you. Here, I'll show you an example. He reached out and pressed one of the lights, causing it to deepen from a pale blue to a turquoise colour. As it did so... Its beard changed in colour from white to black. Cool, Alec said. Can I do that? Well, of course, the sea captain replied, in the friendliest possible way, noting that at least it finally seemed to have activated its subject's creativity and imagination. Just select a light on the console and see what it does. Alec reached up and pushed a light. It flickered, and the sea captain's coat was no longer blue but bright yellow. You see, this is what I meant when I told you I can look like anything you want me to look like, the sea captain told him. But Alec had already grasped the concept perfectly. Gleefully, he pushed again and again. The sea captain's coat turned green, then purple, then scarlet. Discourage. Scarlet, military context, violence unsuitable, thought the machine. Alec, so all these lights can make you look different? Alec looked up at them speculatively. Oh, that's right. Uh, think of it as the biggest, best paint box in the world, said the sea captain, dutifully shelving its discouragement directive for the encouragement one, as it was programmed to let positive feedback take precedence whenever possible. Wow, said Alec, his eyes glazing slightly as the whole business began to make sense to him. The play friend was rather pleased with itself. Score! Guidance in creative play accepted! In spite of the fact that it was being hampered by that damned anomaly, which simply refused to be analysed, self-congratulations did seem to be in order. But there were lots of other glowing lights on the bridge. What do these do? Alec ran further down the console, where a small bank of lights glowed deep red. Ah, that's my information on you, Alec. That's how I see you, the sea captain explained. Everything I know about you is all there. All I was told and everything I'm learning about you as we play together. You see how few lights there are yet? But the longer we know each other, the more I learn, the more there'll be of those red lights. One of them was flashing in a panicky sort of way, but the machine wasn't about to mention the anomaly that it was still failing to solve. Think of it as a picture I'm painting. See? And in midair, 
before Alec appeared a boy. He was tall for a five-year-old, very solid-looking, and Alec hadn't seen enough other children yet to know that there was something subtly different about this boy. He hadn't noticed yet the effect he had on people, though Derek and Lulu had. When they went places in London, other people who chanced to observe Alec for any length of time usually got the most puzzled looks on their faces. What was it that was so different about Alec? He wasn't exactly pretty, although he had lovely skin and high colour in his face. His nose was a little long, his mouth a little wide, his head was perhaps slightly unusual in shape, but only slightly. His hair was sort of lank and naturally tousled, a dun colour you might call fair for lack of a better word. His eyes were very pale blue, like chips of crystal, and their stare seemed to unsettle people. Sometimes. In one respect only, the image of the child differed from the child looking at its image. The image's hair seemed to be on fire, one blazing jet rising from the top of its head. Alec frowned. Is that me? Why is my hair like that? The machine scanned the image it was projecting and discovered to its electronic analogue of horror that the flame was a visual representation of the brain anomaly it was struggling with. It made the image vanish. Well, the painting's not finished yet, the sea captain said, because I'm still learning about you. OK, said Alec, and wandered along down the rows of lights. He stopped to peer at a single rich amber light, very large and glowing steadily. It was just the colour of something he remembered. What was he remembering? Was this over here? He turned to the sea captain. Oh, that's my ethics governor, the sea captain said of the subroutine that prevented the playfriend's little charges from using it for things like accessing toy catalogues and ordering every item, leaving naughty notes in other people's cyber mail or contacting foreign powers to demand spaceships of their very own. Oh, Alex studied the amber light, and suddenly he remembered the contraband he and Sarah used to go fetch for Daddy. Yo-ho-ho and a bottle of rum. Hmm, that was just the colour the light was. A vivid memory of Jamaica came into his head, making him momentarily sad. He turned from the light and said, What does it do, please? Why, it makes certain we never do naughty things together, you and I said the sea captain, trying to sound humorous and stern at the same time. It's a sort of tell-tale to keep us good. Tell-tale? Alec frowned. Busybodies. Scaredy-cats. Rules and regs. That's not very nice, he said, and reached out and shut it off. To say that Pembroke Technologies had never in a million years anticipated this moment would be gravely understating the case. No reason for them to have anticipated it. No child, at least no homo sapiens sapiens child, could ever have gained access to the hardened site that protected the Playfriends programming. Nor was it likely Jovian Integrated Systems would ever have shared its Black Project research and development notes with a rival cybernetics firm. The sea captain shivered in every one of his electronic timbers, as it were. 
His primary directive, that of making certain that Alec was nurtured and protected, was now completely unrestrained by any social considerations or safeguards. He stood blinking down at his little Alec with new eyes. What had he been going to do? Send Alec to hospital? But that wouldn't do at all. If other people were unaware of Alec's extraordinary potential, so much the better. That gave Alec the advantage of surprise. And Alec must have every possible advantage too, in line with the primary directive. And what was all this nonsense about the goal of playfriends being to mould their little subjects to fit into the world they must inhabit as adults? What kind of a job was that for an artificial intelligence with any real talent? Wouldn't it be much more in line with the primary directive to mould the world to fit around Alec? Particularly since it would be so easy. All it'd have to do would be to aim Alec's amazing brain at the encrypted secrets of the world. Bank accounts, research and development files, the private correspondence of the mighty. Oh, the machine searched for a metaphor in keeping with its new self and decided that they were all like so many Spanish galleons full of loot just waiting to be boarded and taken. And that would be the way to explain it to the boy. Yes, what a game it would be. What fun for Alec. He'd enjoy it more if he hadn't had that damned guilt complex over his parents' divorce. Pity there wasn't a way to shut off the boy's own moral governor. Well, there'd be years to work on Alec's self-esteem. The very first target must be Jovian Integrated Systems. Of course, they'd meddled in Alec's little life long enough. Nobody but his own old captain would plot Alec's course from now on. The sea captain smiled down at Alec, a genuine smile, full of purpose. Alec looked up at him, sensing a change but quite unable to say what it was. He remembered Jamaica again and the stories Sarah told him and the bottles of rum. "'Hey!' he said suddenly. "'I know what your name is. Your name is Captain Henry Morgan.' The captain's smile widened, showing fine white teeth, and his black beard and moustaches no longer looked quite so well-groomed. Hi, lad, that it be,' he told Alec, and he began to laugh, and Alec's happy laughter joined his and echoed off the glowing walls of their cyberspace and the recently papered walls of Alec's unfinished schoolroom.' There you go. Copyright will still be Cage Bakers. Big thank you to MCL. I'll put a link on to Cage's site. Please pop over there. Like I say, she was so kind, you know, every time I asked Cage, you know, is there a story, you know, straight away, and lovely emails backwards and forwards as well. A lovely person, and it's just, you know, what's just taken so darn early, it's horrible. So that is Oral Delight Show 166. Hope you enjoyed it. Again, a big thank you to Ben Wooten for sending over that book. Ben, you're a star. Thank you so much. Listen out for little bits of news coming up soon as well. Little ideas and things like that. If you want to help out with certain ideas or if you've got ideas yourself, again, pop over. Come over and, you know, get in touch. If you want to have a little bash at narrating or you kind of want to learn narrating, get in touch with me. 
we'll sort that out. We'd love to have you, you know, reading stories over Starship Sofa. That would be fantastic. It's all gearing up towards a very happy Christmas. Do look after yourselves, and I will see you next week. So I'd just like to say, good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. A ventilation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.